Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Good triple header for you today on Word Balloon. We're going to start things off with Mark Miller. Mark uh, was in Chicago back in the summer, and I got a chance to talk to him live at his hotel in suburban Chicago. Well, this time we uh, tried a conversation via Skype because his new book, Huck, from Image Comics with Raphael Albuquerque starts next month. In fact, uh, the final order closing date is Monday, so we wanted to get this uh, interview in and uh, let you hear about Huck straight from the horse's mouth. Of course, Mark also talks a lot about uh, his uh, movie business that's coming up. A lot of things are in development. Uh, We also talk about uh, he is starting to have a change of mind when it comes to possible adaptation to television from some of his works, and it's good to hear that. And uh, we also just get his thoughts on the current comic market. Things have changed in a few months, and uh, it's always good to get a fresh perspective from Mark Miller. We get that in part one of Word Balloon. Part two, Halo 5, as we all know, is coming out on Tuesday, and uh, I thought it was a good opportunity to uh, replay from 2012 a great conversation I had with Master Chief himself, Steve Downs. Steve and I share a Chicago radio history, and uh, it was a great opportunity to talk to him about the creation of the character and uh, just uh, the weirdness of being the voice behind one of the most iconic heroes of the 21st century. Steve Downs in part two of Word Balloon. We wrap things up with a panel discussion I had at Cincy Comic Con with the writers of Fables. Fables wrapped up this year, the Great Vertigo series, and uh, at Cincy Comic Con, one of the featured panels was all the writers of Fables. Bill Willingham, the creator of Fables, uh, Matthew Sturgis, who wrote Jack of Fables, and uh, Chris Robertson, who uh, did uh, great work on the Cinderella graphic novels in the Fables universe. So uh, it's great to hear from the gentlemen about their experiences in the Fables universe as things ramp up and they look back at their over a decade, over 150 issues just for Fables, but then also uh, you consider the Cinderella issues and Jack. So there's a lot of comics to talk about in that Fables panel, and we'll hear that to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Great deals are happening right now at InStock Trades. You can get up to 70% off select Dynamite uh, titles. You can also get a huge 45 percent off all DC and image titles and select top shelf titles are up to 70% off. They make it easy with a lot of great deals right there on the front page and uh, just keep digging because uh, if it's in stock, you'll find it at uh, the website in stock trades. You can get things like the Jessica Jones trade paperback volume two, just in time for the Netflix series, uh, Mike Gatos and uh, Brian Michael Bendis, 42% off volume two. It's just $11 and 59 cents. You can get He-Man Masters of the Universe hardcover, uh, 42% off, $17.39. You can get uh, from Grant Morrison and DC Comics, Multiversity, the deluxe edition hardcover, is 50% off, $24.99. How about the Star Wars Legends Epic Collection, 42% off, $23.19. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You'll find more great deals waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. 
Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you all for your support, whether it's just uh, word of mouth and telling a friend that you like the show or actually subscribing to Word Balloon, which you can do via Patreon. If you go to wordballoon.com, right on our front page, there is uh, an ad there for Patreon. If you click on that, it will take you to my Patreon page. Think about it. Average comic book, $3.50 takes what 10 15 minutes to read a comic book if you really sit down and savor the art like we should um word balloon i mean i I try to give you at least two hours of uh entertainment each uh, episode and uh, at least four episodes a month if not uh, five or six depending on the month so i think you get a lot of uh, bang for your buck from word balloon if you can spare a dollar a month that's terrific uh you know i'm not going to ask you to break the bank and by the way if you can't spare it totally understand word balloons free it will always be free but if you want to help out the cause uh you can go to patreon.com slash word balloon or wordballoon.com right on the front page and it will take you to the subscription site thank you for your support all right let's uh take you back just a couple days now to my conversation with mark miller we did it via skype uh like two old men who can't believe the connection on long distance uh, this is great. It's like you're in the next room. And it is. It's uh, like we're uh, talking to each other in the same room. But I was uh, very excited about that. And just happy to hear from Mark. Uh, very excited for Huck. Uh, great start. Uh, he sent me a preview of issue one. I think it's going to be another great, concise, clear story as I discuss with Mark. But uh, the man's on a roll. He's got a lot of great original ideas. And apparently more are coming as well. So let's hear what's going on in the comics and film worlds of Mark Miller in part one of Word Balloon. Man, how are you? Hi, very well. How's yourself? Excellent. I just saw the photographs from uh, Chicago in uh, back of Jupiter's uh, Legacy in issue five. Oh, they're great, aren't they? <laughs> you know, it's awesome. You were at the you were at the Bean, and that's literally right in front of the building that uh, I work in. Oh, really? Yeah. And I know it's so yeah, cool. I, it's like something out of the Legion of Superheroes or something. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> really i know or it could have been in, in the fortress of solitude yeah, exactly. <laughs> i like to think that's just one of the trophies that you've collected from your adventures you know <laughs> exactly that's exactly what it is absolutely so you were there on saturday so i wasn't there at the you know i'm assuming that was after either before or after the signing at downtown yeah that's right yeah we got like a 15 minute tour of chicago it's always funny when you do a signing somewhere because you don't really have a huge amount of time so you try and take in a whole city in minutes you know so it's always really hard. So you go and see the two best things, and then you get on a plane and go home. I respect that. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I'm just going to close my door because my kids will be sure. in about five minutes, and they're just going to come straight in here. So I'm just going to I'm just going to close this door. No, no problem, man. That's better. It's, it's safer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just sounded kind of like it smashed rather than it closed. It. That's why I'm laughing. Oh, man. Dude, this is like the best. And I always do this because we usually talk a world away from each other. Yeah. This is like the best connection we've ever had. It's amazing. It's amazing, actually. I'm so impressed by the 21st century. Like, I'm sort of just catching up on this stuff now, you know? Like, uh, I've got a cell phone from 2001. I've only used Skype three times. I've never bought anything on Amazon, you know? I'm still kind of living right about 1994, generally. That's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, yeah, you know, and uh, we talked about this uh, in the summer, how, you know, you're not watching a lot of, you know, you're way behind on TV that you watch your stuff, I think, through DVDs, yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that. I'm like, I'm like everyone's great grandfather. I'm like a historical <laughs> figure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to keep all this and now welcome you properly. Uh, Mark Miller. <laughs> welcome, welcome back to Word Balloon. It's always uh, it's always good to talk to you, man. Oh, thank you. 
And uh, congrats on uh, the first issue of Huck. You, were, you guys were kind enough to uh, provide me a, a first issue, a sneak preview. And, dude, I'm really impressed because there's a simplicity to these ideas, but it's also a clarity. And, I, and I, you know, I mean that in the most positive way yeah. because you're right there. You understand exactly what this is about. And I don't know how much you want to say, so I'll let you preview what Huck is about, and then we can go from there. Well, it's interesting. That's exactly right. I mean, what I, I wanted to do was something that's, that's incredibly simple and straightforward, but sophisticated in its own way, you know? Like, um, I wanted to do a superhero thing, like if superheroes had never been invented. You know, like if if Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster had decided to do something else for a living, if Stan Lee had become an actor instead of being, you know, all these characters that we've loved, these 10,000 characters between Marvel and DC, if none of them ever existed, and we took just that very concept of what a superhero is and tried to just create it as if this stuff had never happened before. So, so it's a very simple idea, actually. I just thought, what is a superhero? You know, it's, I know it's not someone who snaps people's necks. I know it's, it's, it's not a guy, you know, who, who brutalizes somebody and puts them in hospital and all that, you know, all, all the sort of darker aspects of what we've seen from heroic comics over the years, you know, it just, mm-hmm. I wanted to just go in the opposite direction with this thing. And, and I didn't want it to lack drama. I wanted it to be um, as dramatic as possible, but also as kind of something that made you just feel good. You know, like it came from watching Guardians of the Galaxy. I, walk, I walked out of Guardians of the Galaxy and I just thought that was a really good night out, you know, and, and I remember yeah. looking at the people who'd just been to see the new Planet of the Apes movie, and they looked like, you know, this looks sad, you know, as they were coming out. <laughs> and I, and I, I had this real moment, and it was like, no, our purpose in life, you know, as, as writers or, you know, uh, artists or filmmakers, whatever, uh, is to entertain, you know, like to actually uh, make you uh, f- have a good time, you know, because when you part with $3.50, you know, I, I think part of the deal sometimes is that you feel a little better, you know, so, so I, I just thought, you know what, let's, by the time we've got Superman snapping a guy's neck as the solution to a problem, you know, like, then maybe the time has come to turn the ship around a little bit, you know, and just try something a little new, you know? And that's what Huck is. Huck is, Huck is, Huck is Frank Capra doing superhero comics, you know? That's, that's my plan. That's interesting, because I saw it as very uh, Spielberg, and, I, and I'm sure that Capra is a Spielberg uh, inspiration when he you know, tries to make those movies. And also um, the Donner <coughs> Superman movie too, when you go back to those uh, Smallville scenes and, and there is this like kind of farm area, uh, golden kind of tinge that if it was cinematography, you know, you'd have that, uh, you know, as well as the farmland and stuff as as we're introduced to this town that uh, takes Huck in in a very Moses-like or also Superman-like uh, way. Do you know the funny thing? I hadn't, I really genuinely didn't have Superman in my head. It must have just been a subconscious thing because what I really wanted was, you know, this a town and it's a wonderful life or something. You know, that's a classic Capra-esque, you know, yes. a town where everybody looks out for each other and the town maybe has a little secret and everybody just has the best intentions. Like a John Hughes town or something. You know, I just, I wanted something that just felt like the, the American town I wanted to live in when I was a kid. And I kind of loved the idea of, Somebody in a town, you know, who has these amazing powers, but everybody in town just just looking out for them and keeping it their secret. There's a there's a weird integrity to it, you know. Like I love the idea that I mean, if you do do think in Smallville terms, I'd love the idea that you know, there's there's all this crazy stuff goes on around Smallville all the time. There's alien invasions. There's super villains attacking. You know, this tiny Midwestern town, you know, and nobody's figured out the other guy with blue hair in the town is is is, is Superboy. You know that kind of thing. And and I kind of I love the idea that the town 
is kind of keeping the secret. You know, that they know who he is, of course, but they're friends with the Kents and they just keep it quiet, you know, because they like the Kents and it's, it's the right thing to do. We don't sell this to the newspapers or anything. So, you know, that sort of idea, I guess, is probably what this, what this looks like, a, a Frank Capra perfect American town that has a special citizen who they look after, you know, and he and, and in turn he looks after them. You know, he does these, these lovely things for them every day. His, his mantra is that he will do one good deed every day. And I love the idea that from just a, a very simple, heroic kind of point of view, it's like, it just feels so classical, the idea of that when he wakes up in the morning, he has to do something nice every day or else his day has failed at the end of the day. So it can be something tiny. It could be returning a library book for you or whatever. But at the same time, it could be something colossal, something something amazing. And But it's always done in secret. And the fact that he doesn't seek a reward and everything, it just... I think, you know, we've all been writing these stories for the last decade or so where the superheroes are trying to get rich and be celebrities and all this kind of thing. So so going in that opposite direction where there's no reward, it just felt very, very interesting to me when I was writing it. And then, of course, uh, as we see, uh, the real world kind of becomes aware of Huck. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that, that likely leads to, to the rest of the story is, you know, you've got this idyllic town that is cool with the idea. And, and as you say, some of these gestures are as simple as, all right, I'm going to buy everybody lunch yeah. behind me in line or, or, you know, things, the, the great list that we see in that first issue of, of just his deeds. And they go from super heroics to just these like kind of nice things of literally like maybe putting money in every parking meter. So yeah. everybody, you know, knows that they, they don't have to feed it again and stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, and then again, yeah, the real world suddenly discovers this guy and, and, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens from there, but, uh, very interesting. No, great, great start. And, um, tell me about, tell me about, uh, using Raphael Albuquerque or choosing Raphael Albuquerque for this project. Well, I'm proud to say that I can now spell his name and I'm not kidding. He and I have been working together now <laughs> almost this entire year and I just kept getting it wrong, you know, and like, uh, and I, but about a week ago, it just clicked for me. It's like Timur Bekbabentov, you know, the, the guy who directed Wanted. It took me about 18 months to get his name right, you know. And now, now I've got Raphael's, and I'm so proud of myself, you know. And he, he he's not that impressed. He's like, this is no big deal. <laughs> you know? but, like, but I'm so pleased I can write his name down. Because, I mean, he genuinely is a genius, like an absolute genius. And the thing that's really weird is that normally if somebody's really good, they're really slow. It's just that's the way it is. You know, like if somebody is a brilliant artist, the, the, the flip side of that is that they're a flake, you know, and they'll, they'll take forever to get the pages in. And it's unfortunately what often comes with, with genius, you know. But, my God, you know, I mean, Raphael, I think, can draw a page faster than I can describe it. Like, it's, it's insane. He's so fast. He can easily do two books a month. And I'm a big fan of American Vampire and my great friend is Scott Snyder. And, I, you know, I'd wanted to work with Raphael, but um, it was kind of like, asking someone to dance who was married or something like that. You know, I, sure. I, I got in touch with Raf, uh, with Scott and I said, look, Harrison, before I approach Raphael, I heard he's fast and everything, but I don't want to mess around with your schedule, you know, an American vampire. And he's like, dude, you've no idea how fast this guy is. You know, he can, he can easily handle a mini series like this and, uh, and American vampire at the same time. So, so I was ecstatic. And when the first sketches came back, it was just so beautiful. I mean, just uh, just getting to work with somebody at this level is always a, a total privilege, you know. And and I, another guy who was similar was, um, you know, like Sean Murphy. Sean Gordon Murphy is just out in this world. He's super fast, super brilliant, super nice. I've been so spoiled this year. And I don't know what's happening. It seems to be contagious because even Frank Quitely 
is upped his pace. You know, he's he's drawing really fast. Wow. And our big thing at the moment is um, that I'm stockpiling every book that I work on, so that there's never any delays. I've done this for the last year. So what you know, it, you know, it's, it's expensive, but it's worth it. You know, so what happens is I I help the artist out by advancing the cash for for each book, but then we actually stockpile five, six issues, however long the series runs. We have them in the drawer. And then we just release them monthly. You know, we just bring the books out monthly. So, like, uh, so Frank Quitely, though, I mean, he's, he surprised me. You know, he's actually, he and I went out for a drink on Saturday night. And he said, I did four pages this week, which is unheard of for him. You know, so so he's just finishing issue three of the five issue Jupiter's Legacy, volume two. And uh, terrific. hopefully by, by New Year, we, we should have the whole thing done. So I'm going to start releasing them in the New Year. So, so all good. All good. That's excellent, man. And, yeah, you mentioned uh, Sean Gordon Murphy. Uh, Chrononauts ended well. I, I really enjoyed that oh. first arc and, you know, thrilled that it's uh, coming back because it's a solid concept. And, you know, uh, as we talked about in the summer, uh, prime for a, for a movie, but really does stand on its own as a comic book as well. And and looking forward to, to both. I, I think uh, it, it, it does speak to, uh, I think, a, a big screen audience, and I think it would work in that way and can't wait to see it. But also it was a lot of fun. And also, I like the twist at the end. Bless you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think, like, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't see it as anything other than a comic. I think I said to you that the head of Universal um, wanted to buy it from me before I'd, I'd written it as a book. And I was, you know, I'd originally planned it as a short film. It was a thing I was going to do with Ridley Scott about three years ago. Um, and Ridley wanted me to do it as a 10-minute sci-fi short that would be released online. Uh, you know, obviously, just the opening sort of 10 minutes of the story, which was relatively low budget. And um, we were going to make it for $100,000. And uh, the financing for that never came through. So we ended up uh, just shelving it, you know. And then I told the head of Universal about it. And he was like, this would be an awesome movie. Just think bigger with it. You know, make, make it a, you know, a big two-hour thing. And, I, and once I started thinking about it, I said, I can only see this as a comic. So, so weirdly, you know, like... I, I never think in movie terms. I always think in comic book terms. And then once I did it as a comic, I realized it could be a cool movie as well, you know? Yeah, I think so, man. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, we talked about this in the summer. You, uh, you, you're kind of, you see your ideas, as you say, as comic books first, then movies. And you were still kind of like iffy about television. I wonder in the couple months, and obviously I know you've been busy too, yeah. but if you've had a chance to watch more, uh, you know, comic book adaptations to television and, and get a different point of view on them or not. Do you know, I I, uh, I haven't, but what I, I have done is I've watched the Netflix um, Daredevil thing, which is which is spectacular, you know, like, yeah. I think, you know, Marvel can be uneven sometimes, you know, like a lot of the stuff is like S.H.I.E.L.D. hasn't been very good or whatever, but, but I think like um, Daredevil surprised me, you know, I think I, I've always been slightly down on the idea of superheroes in television just because I think Generally speaking, superheroes tends to just work with a budget. Like, yes, like I, even I mean, even when there's no flying or there's no you know gigantic third act battles or anything like that, even even just to get a really good fight coordinator like Brad Allen is very very expensive. He's brilliant, but he's extremely expensive, and that's why his fights look so good because he's the best in the business. So he does Edgar Wright's movies. He does Matthew Vaughn's movies. You know, if you if you like Eggsy going into Mount Everest at the end of Kingsman. Uh, you know, the, the sequences is because Brad Allen is so expensive. He's brilliant. You know, I mean, those action sequences uh, were amazing in the first Kick-Ass as well. He was uh, the guy with the hero stuff and everything. So, yes. so I always, I think, really comic book stuff, like superhero stuff in particular, television doesn't have the budget. You know, like, it's such a tiny fraction of what we get in movies to, to, to work with, you know. But 
even though they used the same sets like over and over again in the Daredevil TV show, and you could you could see it was a little rough around the edges just in terms of how much cash they had, it's spectacular. I mean, I, I think it's up there for me with things like Sopranos, The Wire, Mad Men. Yes. You know, uh, Breaking Bad. You know, like I I really loved it and. I was watching it. I really get into it with episode four as the Kingpin was becoming a bigger deal. And by the time we were into stick and everything with episode seven, eight, and then by the finale, it was it was ludicrously good. It was, it was so brilliant. I loved it. So it, it does make me think, yeah, it would be cool to do something in television. And I, I, there's one project um, they're thinking about doing is a television show we've been talking about. It was in Los Angeles about three weeks ago, and we were talking. I, I always said to my agent I didn't want to, but I really liked these guys. They were really good, and they had a really good take on, on the thing, too, for television that I think it could work really well. So so we'll see. You know, I mean, there's nine, there's nine Miller World movies sort of in uh, various stages have been made at the moment, so, so my attention's entirely on them, you know, but, but TV, I absolutely wouldn't rely on Okay, because yeah, and, I, and it's funny we we mentioned Daredevil in our conversation, and uh, I'm I'm not surprised that you're you're kind of warming to the idea because you're right that ending was operatic, and also that series is a game changer in the same way that Sopranos and Wire were, yeah. and and really I, I think is exceptional television. That's kind of where we are right now. And now you mentioned the movies. I was uh, surprised to see that. Uh, the Kingsman sequel, you guys are trying to figure out a way of uh, keeping uh, or bringing back Colin Firth because he was such a great part of, of the first film. And then, of course, the way the movie ends, that's the trick. How do you bring him back? Well, you know, he's not necessarily... I mean, you have to remember that's... I don't know. I was very, very slightly sort of taken out of context with that. I mean, it was just one, oh, okay, tell just, me. Yeah. Just, just one of the options, you know, is the idea of that. You know, um, the screenplay's being written at the moment, you know... Colin may be in it, he may not be in it, he may be used in flashbacks, he may be used in a, you know, a sort of previous sort of sequence, uh, you know, like a, a sure. ever, you know, like there's no sort of decision entirely being made. I think Matthew and Jane are on, I think, about page 50 or something, you know, there's 40 okay. pages completely nailed down, <laughs> they're on about okay. page 50, but they're, they're still playing around with it, you know, but, the, but everything is booked and, uh, you know, they're planning on shooting uh, April next year, coming out June 16th, 2017, so it's, it's exciting, you know, it's funny, I didn't expect it to be as big as this, I never wrote a second book, so Matthew was like, all right, send me down the next book, and I was like, there is no next book, you know, so like, yeah. <laughs> so it's quite interesting, but it's nice, I mean, the beauty, I mean, this is the amazing thing about Creator Own, like, you know, Steve McNiven and I don't see a penny from Civil War, but like, uh, you know, Dave and I get exactly the same money for Kingsman 2 because we own the characters, you know? So, I mean, that is the absolute beauty of Creator Orange. It's, it's terrific, you know? So, um, but as as producers, you know, it's going to be nice. At least we can keep keep an eye on things and, and, and watch it developing, you know? So, like, uh, you know, you are still involved, even though you, you haven't put in the six months' work that you do when you make a book, you know? So is there a possibility then with a, a second movie, obviously already on the books, are you and Dave going to do a Kingsman 2? I don't have time. I genuinely don't. Like what I did. Wow. I, I know okay. Interesting. I know. Well, I just never anticipated this. I thought the movie would do well, but I didn't expect it to do 415 million well. You know, yeah, man. You know I, I thought the movie cost 81, maybe spent 30 marketing. So anything over about 200 million and it was possibly going to get a sequel you know so we were like it'd be really great if it made 210 220 or something we thought wouldn't that be amazing you know and then it, when it's come in with this preposterous number and then has done gangbusters on dvd and blu-ray as well you know and and then there's the television rights and everything like fox were like yeah do another movie immediately you know so i just wow. anticipate it i mean i i there's a bunch of projects of mine that are announced this week um and you'll just see basically I'm, I'm i'm kind of booked up for the next two to three years you know so it's, it's just impossible for me you know i mean I think I'm 
I think I'm on something like book, like franchise, comic book franchise number 15 or something at the moment. And I'm doing sequels to like number 9, 10, and 11. You know, like I'm doing the Starlight sequel, Chrononauts sequel. Um, yes. You know, it's, uh, there's there's just sadly too much going on. You know, I mean, it's a lovely problem to have. You know, but like, uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I uh, I just sadly don't have time. Well, you know, and I I want to uh, because another reason that I think Kingsman was such a surprise was it kept kicking, getting kicked down on the schedule. I remember when it was supposed to come out in the summer. I don't know what the reasons were for it to get uh, that it was pushed back for you know further and further and finally uh opening at the end of the, or at the beginning of uh of 2015 yeah the the interesting thing too is that it is up against you know or i guess in within the year you've got the man from uncle reba <coughs> you've got you've got another mission impossible mission impossible was amazing but isn't it interesting that man from uncle is in that same milieu and yet you know uh just couldn't find its footing and you guys with your you know homage to that kind of fun period but also it being a uh, part modern day as well just come in and, and i mean just have the big hit that it does i mean didn't that, it surprised me that man from uncle wasn't a bigger hit because clearly there's an audience for that kind of fun secret agent stuff done mm. the right way yeah i think like um coming out first definitely helps with these things you know like sure. i've really noticed this that you know if you can come out in the early part of the year people are in a good mood and if you come out later in the year, everybody's kind of tired. It's really weird. I mean, I've I've really studied this. I've really looked at it. And generally, at the end of summer, people are just sort of like, oh, you know. And they're, sure. they're sort of waiting for the awards movies. And then there's the big fun Christmas movies. And then there's the January dump in. And then February, you're sort of beginning to get movies that studios kind of trust again. March, the really good ones are starting up again. You know, big money movies and everything. And, and there's just, there's something about the other end of summer that you can look at it in terms of box office as well. It is very interesting where there's just a bit of a slump. Like people have sort of spent the money that they're planning on spending going to the cinema. Reviewers are sort of out of stars by that time in the year. They're just starting to get a little tired and everything, you know. And and uh, and I, I just, I thought it was a bad idea. And I remember being at San Diego Convention uh, last year after we'd gone uh-huh. to promote it. And I was like, I don't feel people are aware of the movie enough. And I went up to Fox um, I, I was up there for a meeting anyway, you know, for a couple of days, and I walked in and they said, "How did it go in San Diego?" And I said, "Everybody seemed to like it, you know, but I think they were unaware the movie was being made." And they were like, "What?" And I was like, "Just people are just unaware of the movie, you know. There's there's no um, there's no real presence for it." And the Fox guys are great, you know. They all said, "Okay, let's talk about this then," you know. So the idea was let's push it into next year and give it a great campaign. And there's a couple of really terrific people, um, you know, got involved. There's Chris Aronson you know, who's the guy who selects the dates. And he's a genius. I mean, Chris, Chris is a guy at Fox who just gets out the calendar. And I don't know, he's like, it's like a guy from the Matrix or something. He just sees it as numbers. It's all binary to him. He can just tell exactly the perfect day to release something, but it's going to make the most money and everything, you know. And he came up with that Valentine's Day release. And he was like, there's enough money kicking around in Valentine's weekend that you can have not only a massive hit, you can have another massive hit. And sometimes even a third massive hit, you know. He said there's just enough money kicking around because people are out. And he, and he thought, it looked terrifying, you know, going up against Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, but he says, it was, a cal- <laughs> That's right. yeah, it was a calculated risk. And he says, no, I, I think it'll do just fine. And it did, you know, and I, I'm so pleased yeah. and trusted him. And the other hero in all this as well is a woman called Valerie Van Golder, who's a friend of ours, uh, who Matthew's known for like 20 years. And she used to run Sony's uh, marketing department. And uh, she's just an absolute genius. And she, between she and Chris, you know, they worked, uh, Chris, they worked out the most incredible uh, marketing campaign for this. And 
And a franchise that people hadn't heard of at all just suddenly felt like a big deal, you know. And and by the time the actual movie came out, they test screened it enough and, and actually advance screened it enough to so many people in pivotal cities and everything that the buzz was terrific, you know. And then by the time it hit Asia, it was going crazy. And I mean, some crazy statistic, like one in nine people in South Korea have seen the movie. You know, something nuts that just did really, really well in Asia, which is brilliant. And I, I've been given all these invitations to come out and talk in Asia, which is nuts. I'm, I'm going to go and talk at like, a, you know, a Korean university and things like that next year. You know, it's, uh, there's just there's all this cosplay coming in from Korean kids dressed up as as Colin and Taran, which is just brilliant. I love it. That's fantastic. As you go on, I would love to hear about your experiences in the Asian market, because that seems to be the salvation for a lot of the blockbusters now. I mean, God, we, we saw with uh, Terminator Genesis yeah. how it just did so-so here. China it exploded. You had that kind of <clears throat> success from a European versus American thing with Kick-Ass. I think a lot of people didn't know how to take the first Kick-Ass movie, and certainly you know, uh, uh, people like uh, uh, Jim Carrey didn't do you any favors with the second movie. And meanwhile, you know, they, they did. I'm glad that uh, the first movie did well enough to do a second one. I don't know how the second one did worldwide, but regardless... We're all hearing about how China and the Asian markets are really kind of, you know, making a difference and 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 giving you know new new footing to a lot of these films. Oh yeah, I mean just just uh, you know simply, I mean they're just building so many screens. Yeah, there, you know, sure, it's, more eyeballs. It's just expanding. Yeah. It's it's kind of like in comic book terms, you know, just like comic stores opening every day all over America. You know, it's just that that kind of thing. Now. Um, you know the the one thing that is a little bit tricky with with um, with the Asian market is you don't get the same return, but it just goes through various distribution channels. You know, so, so sometimes it looks like if something makes a hundred million, for example, there's maybe fifty million of that coming back compared to sure. an American uh, gross of a hundred million or something. You know, so it's it's never quite as good as that looks. You know, but it's but it's still terrific. You know, um, and it's uh, you know it's I think in terms of the money coming back to the studio, um, there's. 50 cents on every dollar in America and Europe and in Asia, something more like 28 cents or something like that that comes back, you know? So so okay. when you do the math, it's, it's, you know, it's a little less, but it's still fantastic, you know? Uh, I mean, with Kick-Ass and, uh, and Kick-Ass 2, I think we were 28 million budget for the first film, which people never believed, like, because it was awesome. so good, you know, it was a 20 yeah, million man. budget and it made 102 million, I think, in total, but the same you count Japan and everything. So, um, and then it did another 140 on DVD and Blu-ray because it just caught that whole Blu-ray thing, you know, and, yeah. and the television rights. So in total, we made about 240, 250 million on a 28 million investment, you know, so, yeah. so it did great. Kick-Ass 2 was less, we did about 40% less, but the movie cost a little less. It was 24 million cost and it made back about 61. Um, and then did about the same again on DVD and Blu-ray, you know, so it's, um, but, you know, so they made money, they both made money, um, but not enough to excite enough for a kick-ass three. And I trust the market. I think if people want it, you do it. And if people don't, then you move on, you know, so you, you just got to be brutal sure. about that stuff, you know. That's interesting. I kind of figured that a hit girl, you know, movie was kind of inevitable. I think and- Matthew's really keen on doing it, actually. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm happy for... For it to be, you know, these 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 two movies is great, you know. But like, uh, I mean, to I think it was created in two thousand and eight to by two thousand and thirteen have two Hollywood movies out there. I, I'm like pinching myself. I'm like, this is amazing, you know. So if oh, nothing yeah. else from it, fantastic. Matthew Matthew's very keen, and we're both huge fans of Gareth Evans. We were trying to talk Gareth Evans, who did the Raid, into doing a hit girl movie. Um, and we thought that could be awesome, you know. So, so so we'll see. I don't know. Matthew's one of those guys. He'll surprise you, you know, like. 
like no studio wanted to touch the first Kick-Ass film, so he raised twenty-eight million himself and privately financed it. You know, so when Matthew says he's going to do something, he tends to uh, in the end do it. You know, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, and um, I I wanted to know uh, can have they named directors for uh some of the stuff that's in production like Starlight and uh, things like that? Um, I'm trying to think what I know and what's public. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get, I don't want to trip you up, but yeah, if you know, if you can say. Uh, well, Matthew Vaughn, I I don't know if Matt, <laughs> I don't know if Matthew's publicly said anything about what he's doing with Kickass too. So I guess I should probably just leave that. But I know they're shooting in April, um, and then uh, we're hoping to be shooting later uh, in the summer. Uh, Superior uh, over at Fox and Starlight, and you know we're we're out to directors on both of them. We've kind of got a good idea. On one of them, who we've got directing, we know who's going to be the lead, and uh, and and certainly one of them, and we've got a pretty good idea who's going to be a, the lead in the other one. Uh, towards the end of the year, we've got Chrononauts, and uh, we don't have a director for that yet, uh, but we do have uh, two leads who we want, you know. So and Huck, Huck as well, we know who we want as a lead for that, and we've got that out to a director just now. Uh, Screenplay-wise, three of them are in the screenplays at the moment, you know. So that's they're just out to directors. Um, so it's funny, I mean, it's weird keeping tabs and all this stuff, you know, but like I say, over the next 24 months, there's maybe nine of them going into production, you know, so it's, it's quite a lot, you know. Yeah, man, no, you've got the hot hand, and, I, and I'm and i very uh, happy for you, and again, they're good concepts. Which one did you say in April again? Uh, Kingsman 2. Oh, Kingsman 2, very cool, yeah, because again, the set date is already there for, for 2017. Yeah. Tell me about the, uh, the uh, writing and art uh, search that you're doing for this Miller World Annual, you're about a month into it. How's that been going? It's so actually far? crazy. It's funny. Like, I'm a great believer in you know you've got to put something back in, right? It's like it's really important. I mean, like I say, I do a four day week. Believe it or not, you know, um, good for you. Just time wise and everything, you know. Like, I, I what I did was I pulled my Friday's time and put it into Monday to Thursday, right? So I I, I start working. The kids get me up super early, you know. So I'm working from eight a.m. And I work through till about 6.30 most days, 7pm maybe, you know, uh, Monday to Thursday. And then Friday I take the day off and, you know, I spend a bit of time with the family and things. And we do volunteer work in the afternoon, you know, which is, which I'll, I'll explain in a minute. That's where the idea for Huck came from, strangely. Okay. Um, but like, uh, so I always just think, you know, like my life's really nice, right? It's kind of like what I wanted to do when I was a kid and I'm really lucky, you know. So I always think you should, you know, do something nice back, you know, put, put something back. And like... Uh, you know, that's that's uh, something I wanted to do with comics as well. Like, comics has been really good to me, you know. I mean, I've, I've really, I've had a lovely career. It's been great. Um, so I thought a lot of people I know, you know, a lot of people I meet at signings and things are like, how do I get into comics? I, I want to do this too. You know, what do you do? And, and it was kind of easier, I think, when I was starting out. There was a lot of kind of startup places like Marvel and DC would have six-page backup strips, you know, in the back of Detective Comics or something like that. Sure. You know, it was, yeah, there was kind of starter comics, you know, there was anthology comics and things. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the UK, we had 2000 AD um, with a sort yes. of nurturing a new talent every week, you know. Uh, the comic was making a lot of money and th there was a lot of opportunities for new people to come in because a lot of the big-name guys were heading off to work for American companies, you know. So I, I kind of came in at a time when they were a bit short of writers and I, I got to kind of go pretty fast in the company that that world almost doesn't exist so much anymore and a lot of people don't know where to start marvel and dc are so short-staffed they don't have a huge amount of time to read through scripts they maybe look at artwork but they don't have a lot of time to read through scripts so i thought i'd like to create a, a talent search you know something that was uh just very simple just every year 
I open up my characters, you know, and I never let people write my characters, so this is very unusual, you know. But I thought, if you okay. want to write Hit Girl, you want to write Kick-Ass, you want to do Kingsman, you want to do Chrononauts, any of these things, it's open to you. I'm going to do an annual every year that's going to come out in the summer, and I'm going to have a talent search that runs up until November the 30th every year. It's going to run for about 10 weeks up until November the 30th. And then I've got a team of 20 friends who are volunteering, and I'm going to take a couple of weeks off, read through everything in December, choose six great new writers who've never been published in any kind of mainstream form, you know, six great artists who've never been published by the big two or anything like that, put them together on these characters and bring the annual out, pay them Marvel and DC money to do it, you know. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll advance the money and any profit that we make, we're going to give, um, you know, to to the Hero Initiative, you know, for for retired uh, comic book writers. Absolutely. So, so the idea is just do this every year. And if we can introduce 12 new people into the comic book market, I'll be delighted. You know, if we can bring six new writers and six new artists in every year as a result of this initiative, it's worth it. Brilliant. That's excellent, man. That's really, really cool. And uh, no, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, some people play with your characters, much as uh, Bendis and uh, Sorrentino did with uh, Old Man Logan. Did you have a chance to look at that at all this summer? Yeah, I love the idea, Brian, is uh, some newcomer that's come in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, but... <laughs> he better not be playing. playing. No, he's, he's, he's playing he's in your a world, great though. job on that. And, and I love, I absolutely love Sorrentino. He's, he's, he's great. You know, the two of them were fantastic. You know, I mean, that's as good as it gets. It's a bit like, you know, if you if you create something and then somebody comes in and wrecks it, it's bleak. You know, it's horrible. I've, I've had that happen a couple of times. And it's horrible. It's like someone burgling your house and splashing paint on the walls or something, you know. But like, uh, but whenever they do it right, it's amazing. You know, again, to get back to Superman, it's like John L sending off Kal-El and he's been raised by the Kents. You think this has turned out just nice. This is good, you know. And I was really happy. I mean, Brian sent me the first issue and I was like, oh, this is great, you know. And I actually tweeted about it saying, like, everybody go and pick this up. It's, it's terrific. And now it's going to Jeff Lemire as well, who, who I absolutely love. I mean, he, Jason Aaron, and Scott Snyder are my holy trinity. I, I, I love those guys. I think they're terrific. You know? I agree. And uh, now they've got really good uh, original stuff coming up and also uh... – the uh, the DC and Marvel stuff that they've got, although you know, I guess in Scott's case, there's DC stuff there. So yeah, they they're great, and no, I, I follow their new projects as as much as I do the Mark Miller projects. So uh, uh, follow this... me just that little bit more, you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> just make that a little bit of extra effort. A final final question. I mean, you know, I, I always want to know what you think of the comic market and stuff, and I, you know, God, uh, both of the big two have just released this, this glut of new uh, comics yeah. in the last month or two. And are still doing it. Um, of course, you know it's funny. Image is is kind of doing the same thing. God, I, I last night I spoke to Sam Humphreys. I'm talking to Jason Aaron about the goddamned uh, on Monday. I'm talking to you today about Huck. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's a crowded field out there, and I, I also think that there might be some sort of market shift that you know. I mean, Image has been a part of. You've certainly benefited from it uh, i think as long uh, kirkman i think is the only guy that's benefited longer than you have in terms of your original ideas yeah. and stuff but just as the as the big two kind of adjust any any thoughts on uh, the current comic market it's a fascinating time i mean it's never not a fascinating time the comic market is always shifting like every market you know and it goes through peaks and troughs financially as well as creatively i think too you know and i think where we are right now is actually very similar to 20 years ago it's very very similar to the feeling of the mid to late 90s where the stuff the mainstream books you know the, the big two books are a little inaccessible i think to new readers um they tend to be they're very very good 
for aiming at people who are very familiar with the concepts and very familiar with the characters, but quite difficult to jump onto, you know? And uh, I, I think for the most part, just talking to people in comic stores and things, you know, some people have thought about maybe trying out a book, but they're not quite sure where to start and everything. Like, every, everything seems incredibly tied together, you know, and very well done. There's a lot of really talented people working on the books, but the books are very tied together, which makes it kind of hard to start, you know? Um, and I think that's where Image has really, really um, benefited because they're incredibly easy. You know, from a $9.99 intro book, you know, yeah, these, sure. these trades uh, are perfect starting points. And, and you know, you, you, you have series that's really only 12 issues, 24 issues, 36 issues old. It's, it's very easy to catch up on when you look at like a hyper continuity, like something like Marvel or DC, like where on earth do you begin? So, so I think that's interesting, but I think it, it'll readjust. I mean... I reckon what will happen, um, and, and save this and laugh at me if I'm wrong, but I reckon what will happen a couple of years down the, the line is it will just simplify again and uh, there'll be a correction. The market corrects itself as it becomes overly complicated and that manifested itself as the ultimate line um, You know, back in 2001. Certainly. Um, where suddenly everybody was like, okay, let's keep this as simple as possible. And then you had things like Daredevil with Kevin Smith and uh, Joe Quesada slightly before that too, you know, but there's just a very nice self-contained story that you can collect into one book, you know, kind of like what a creator-owned book feels like, you know. And I, I think sure. you're going to see a lot more of that. I think I think it won't be for a couple of years down the line because I think we're going to be very event-driven like the late 90s because on paper it looks successful, you know, like they, they print a lot of these books. Um, but I do think there'll be a slight readjustment towards the end of the decade and things will simplify again. And, and I think that brings in the better creators too, because I know that just talking to the guys, I mean, I'm friends with everyone really, you know, and, and all the guys just get a little tired whenever their stories are connecting into other people's stories and they have to finish sure. off other people's ideas and all that. I, I just think you'll attract in better people again, uh, you know, by this simplification, you know, like where it's not so comics by committee, you know, where it's just back to a guy or a girl sitting at their computer or just sitting with a pen and paper, you know, I, th I think it'll, I think it'll simplify. I also wondered, and, and what I also was trying to get to was the idea that I don't think DC and Marvel are going to get the big numbers that they had been getting and are used to because of this insurgence of creator owned books and also even uh, the other publishers like IDW, Dark Horse, and the like that are, uh, you know, it, it's just a larger comic market. And I think they were, you know, the 30,000 for, you know, whatever the real uh, buy numbers are mm -hmm. might be less. We're seeing that with DC with a lot of new self-contained ideas that they've done in this post-event uh, convergence world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm just surprised. And I, they seem surprised. They seem to be uh, reacting to going back to safe, story ideas and a connected universe and i wonder if they just don't realize that maybe there's a new norm that's my observation and i wonder if you had a chance with any of the recent like summer books to to see if you're if you're seeing the same thing yeah i think there's there's a couple of possibilities you know i mean you can we, we are gamblers you know we're all we're all just guessing with this stuff but sure i think there's two possible outcomes here i suspect that you could have people just move on you know, and, and because we because we're mortal, right? You know, we, we grew up in a time where, you know, DC existed and Marvel existed pretty much before any of us, you know, who are working in the industry right. just now. So we think these things are forever. But they're not necessarily forever. You know, things do go away. I mean, there was a time when Tarzan was the biggest thing. You know, Tarzan That's was true. so big that Edgar Rice Burroughs made so much money that he bought a town in the west coast of America. He owns a town, a, a large town. 
and Tarzana, California. Tar- absolutely. Exactly. You know, and, and, and we're, you know, like I've got friends who live there who are unaware that it was actually Burroughs who owned the town and he owned a fire station and he owns a hospital and all these things, you know, it's like he, he owned this town and you could, couldn't imagine Tarzan going away, you know, and in the same way we, we can't imagine, you know, DC characters or Marvel characters just fading, you know, and, and it is possible, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe these are going to be replaced by, by creator owns uh, properties. And if you look at the charts, sometimes that does seem to be heading that way. So that that is a possibility. But the other one, like I say, is the is the simplification factor where where these things which have gigantic billion dollar machines behind them, you know, bringing out movies or television shows or video games or whatever, these things are going to absolutely survive just by the sheer strength of what's behind it. But then again, Disney also has the most famous character in the world with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Goofy and so on. But you can't get a Mickey Mouse movie off the ground, you know. So so. It'll be interesting. Things things will just constantly evolve, and and to be honest, it might not be a bad thing too. Because I mean, I'd rather see successful creations that are owned by the creators than ones owned by corporations. You know, so so if Marvel and DC do take a slight tumble and and the and creator owned rises and takes their place, you know, that's, that's that's a healthy thing for us, not not a bad thing. You know, so. I mean, as a guy who who has all my own comics and my own movies and everything, you know, I'm I'm rooting for me and Raphael and Sean Gordon Murphy more than I'm rooting for you know a big company in New York. Yeah, amen, son, and absolutely, I I hear what you're saying and I agree, and uh, I'm I'm all for the little guy uh, doing his thing. Although uh, you're you're raking in nice money for a little guy, so nice going on that. Do you know I'm drinking yeah. it as fast as I'm making it? To be honest, there's hardly. There's hardly... <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Have fun, man. No, you're on a great roll, and I and I'll let I'll wrap up now and uh, thank you for your time because we promised uh, I I promised a half hour and we went a little bit over, but you're you're a good guy for that. I, I hope uh, we'll talk again in a few more months uh, down the road in uh, maybe 2016 and uh, get an update on everything. But congrats, Huck is a great first book, uh, another wonderful Miller World book, and we're looking forward to that and uh, continued success on uh, Jupiter's Circle. And, uh, and the other books on the way. Thanks, as always, for your time, and I look forward to our next talk. Cool. Thanks very much. Catch you later, then. Okay, we're going to keep things rolling. Halo 5 comes out on Tuesday. I think back to uh, working here at uh, the three Chicago radio stations I work at and our station manager coming to me and saying, so this word balloon, this is uh, kind of geek stuff, right? And he didn't mean it in a mean way. I'm like, yeah, that's right. And he goes, well, you know, our, our morning guy at the album rock station is Master Chief. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, Steve Downs. He's been playing Master Chief like since day one. I had no idea. We worked together at the same company for five years before I found out. And he had been there a lot longer that uh, Steve Downs, a longtime Chicago morning guy, was the voice behind Master Chief in the Halo games. Well, needless to say, we set up this interview back in 2012 uh, while uh, production uh, for Halo 4 was about to get started. And uh, Steve was very generous with his time. But uh, in this uh, portion of the interview, we talk about the origin of Master Chief and really the fact that I, I suddenly discover that there's this other uh, geek culture guy in my company that is uh, doing a hell of a lot more for the cause than I am. It was a pleasure to uh, learn a lot from Steve Downs, Master Chief from Halo, and you'll hear it now in this segment on Word Balloon. I want to start at the beginning and say I feel like Ed Norton when uh, the Grand High Exalted Mystic Ruler of the Raccoons was working <laughs> next to him at the store. I think that's the first time I've been compared to the Grand High Exalted uh, Ruler, so I'm flattered. <laughs> hey, man, Master Chief has that kind of cachet, as you know. So yeah, I think he does, yeah. 
I have a feeling we've been walking through the same circles for the last couple of years. And uh, do you do San Diego every year? I, uh, it's one of the few I, believe it or not, have never done. Interesting. Uh, for one reason or another, either, you know, I was unavailable with it or uh, at the time or I wasn't asked. And uh, so it, it, it uh, yeah, that's one that I have not made. But you've been to the, the big high power ones like, and I can't remember how it's pronounced, but the, what's the one in Japan? I've not been to the one in Japan. I've been to New Zealand oh. and uh, uh, a couple up in Canada. Uh, there's a, a huge one uh, up in Toronto. Uh, I wasn't at this year, but I was last year. And then a couple of, uh, you know, just things around the states here, Florida and, uh, and uh, you know, um, Seattle. We did a big one uh, actually this past uh, August was the 10th anniversary of the original Halo game. Of Combat Evolved and um, 343 Industries, which now is in control of Halo, had a big 10th anniversary celebration. So a lot of the voice talent uh, came out there, and uh, it, it was fantastic. I mean, it drew thousands of people, and um, we, we, we had a blast. They had all kinds of cool stuff set up. And then, you know, I got to meet a lot of the... The people at, uh, you know, Frank O'Connor and a lot of the people at 343 who are now, you know, have taken over from Bungie and are, and are developing uh, Halo 4. Very cool. Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning, if we could, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, tell me how you uh, first got the job. Well, it uh, was back in 2000. I was asked to do a small uh, part for a little uh, uh, PC game, the name of which has always never sticks with me, but it's it's a very insignificant little game that came out uh, for, for PC back in 2000. But the significant thing was the guy who was casting the voice for, or the voices for the game was Marty O'Donnell, who went on then to become an integral part of Bungie. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did this game, and um, and uh, I don't know, maybe a year later, maybe less, he called me again and said, look, we're developing an- another game here um, uh, for uh, Xbox, and uh, we think you'd be right for, for this character. So I said, fine. I came in, and uh, you know, we read some things, and uh, he gave me some direction on it, and uh, uh, the thing about when you do a, a voiceover for a video game, um, you pretty much go in, you do the, you do the work, and then that's kind of the last you hear about it. Because at the time, I was not really into games, and I, I really was not involved in that world. Okay. So when we did the first game, uh, I, I, it was a, you know, a couple-day uh, affair, and then uh, literally maybe six, seven months go by, and I'm down in Florida with a visiting friend of mine. And his uh, kids are in the room. And, and I mean, the funny thing was, he, you know, he introduces me and says, you know, Steve's on the radio in Chicago. He works for a big station in Chicago. And the kids were totally unimpressed. <laughs> and he <clears throat> says, you know, Steve, uh, I care, you know, sometimes on TV, you'll hear his voice on, on commercials. Again, you know, the boredom was was <laughs> just off the charts. So uh, the next day I'm walking through the, the family room and they're playing uh, Xbox or playing Halo. And I said, "Hey, you know, I think I I voiced a character in that game." And they and they, so then all oxygen got sucked out of the room immediately. <laughs> and they said, "Who was it?" And I, I at the time I honestly couldn't remember the character's name. And I was like, "I don't, you know, it's been a while." But I said, I, I, "I don't remember his name, but he I think he was like the main guy." And they said, "Master Chief." And I said, "Yeah, Master Chief." Within 15 minutes, there were 25 to 30 of their <laughs> friends standing outside the door with the Halo game, with their Xbox, whatever, wanting me to sign it. And that was literally the first time I had any idea 
uh, how huge this thing was becoming. And I, uh, you know, later on we went down to a GameStop and I see a full life-size cutout of Master Chief <laughs> in the door. And so it, 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 it was, you know, the, the, the moral of the story is pay attention because <laughs> sometimes <laughs> things are happening that, uh, that you're not aware of. But, yeah, that was sort of the beginning of it. Unbelievable. And I find it fascinating that, although not surprising, that every time one of these games come out, it's like a major motion picture release. I mean, literally, people are waiting in line, as you know. I mean, God, I watch G4, and it's, you know, the coverage is, okay, it's midnight, and the the store's just open, and people are starting to buy Halo. Awesome. No, it it is a major event, and really, I think that really began... Uh, in earnest with Halo 2, where mm-hmm. it, uh, when the, I, I'm not even sure that Bungie had any idea of what was about to happen. I know for a fact they didn't when the first game came out. Um, you know, they were obviously hoping for a successful game, but in, I don't think in anybody's wildest imaginations they had any idea that this was going to become, you know, an icon of, of the video game world. And, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's now, you know, when major games come out, it is an event. And it's, it's, it, in fact, really not only from a, um, uh, from a, uh, people standpoint, but from a dollars and cents standpoint, it way surpasses, uh, a, a movie opening. I mean, the money that I, I think Halo 3, um, I may be mistaken here, but I, I want to say that it, it generated about $180 million worth of business in its first week. Wow. Now, a, a hugely, hugely successful film, if it does 180 to $200 million in its lifetime, is, <laughs> is considered, an, a, you know, and, and this happened in the opening weekend, and that doesn't even count how many, uh, you know, how much hardware is sold behind the release of a new game. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. And since it's become this running series, do you, you know, look at the acting point of view uh, from a different point of view now? I mean, you know, well, very much so. Yeah, certainly from the from the first game. I mean, I, when I got in to do the first game, um, I had no idea what Master Chief looked like. They didn't have anything to show me from a visual standpoint, and um, so uh, you know, we had to just talk about it. And the instru- the direction was. Uh, we're looking for he's think of a Clint Eastwood uh, spaghetti western period cool. for a few dollars more. This is a character who doesn't speak a lot, but when he does, you better be paying attention. And uh, that was sort of the direction that I you know. So I took that and and that's what we did on the first game. The second game, and certainly by the time we got to the third game, uh, you I really had a much better understanding of of uh, you, you know what was happening with master chief you know when he wasn't speaking which is the tr- you know which what you know really what an actor has to do is is you know to discover what what makes this character tick sure and especially so when you're talking about a character who doesn't have a lot of lines um so you don't get to verbally explain yourself as much as you have to do uh in in the few lines that you have so and then there's been this whole other um, uh, I mean, there's books, there's Halo, there's a whole yeah. series of Halo books and comic books and all this stuff that have fleshed out all of the characters a lot more. And that was a great help to me, especially in going in to do Halo 3 uh, to, to really understand, you know, what made this guy uh, tick. Oh, that's great! And so you've read the the comic books and the books and stuff to kind of help. You. I've I've read most of them, yeah. And it's Very cool. uh, it's you know it's a great read actually, and and that's what really drew me into 
the uh, the character and why this has been so much fun for me because uh, I I make no bones about the fact that I don't I don't play the game. Uh, and I know sometimes I'll go to conventions and that can be a source of great disappointment because <laughs> <laughs> I've had a couple of situations where I, I mean, I have two rules uh, when when I'm looking to go to a convention. One is I won't dress as the character. And, the, and number two is uh, I'm, I, I don't play the game. So don't put me in a situation to play the game. Uh, well, the, one of the first conventions I went to down in Miami, of course, the guy completely ignored rule number two, and he and he had a contest, unbeknownst to me, the winner of which got to play me in Halo. So when this is happening, I said, "Look, this is not this is not cool because I don't play the game. The, the, this is not going to be fun for the for the other person." Um, and he said, "Don't worry about it. We've we've rigged the game basically. So all you have to do is hold on to the control." And just hit some buttons, and they won't be able to kill you. It's on a special <laughs> setting, and so, so don't worry about it. So sure enough, uh, the winner is an 11-year-old girl who, despite the rigging of the of the game, managed to wipe me out in about 10 seconds. Outstanding. And I'll tell you, you have not – you don't know humble until you <laughs> have an 11-year-old girl look up from her glasses at you like, that's it? That's all you got? <laughs> So it was a yeah, it was a little humble pie there for me. I think that's fantastic. It's fun to see the storytelling aspect of video games evolve because you well, know adults yeah. are playing this too, and it and I yeah. think you know the sophistication is is coming through now as as the games evolve. Well, that's what drew me into it. I, I guess that's what I was. That was my point. Is that what drew me into it? What wasn't the playing of the game? What drew me into it was the storyline. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big uh, science fiction fan anyway. And so the the uh, the science fiction bent drew me in. And then there's a whole other, you know, the way the characters are, began to interact, you know, with each evolving game and story. Made that's what makes it interesting for me to do. So what I tell people when they uh, are disappointed that I don't play the game, I said look, I leave that part up to you. You do the shooting, I'll do the talking. <laughs> and, you know, and hopefully, you know, that'll be, uh, that'll be satisfactory. But one of the exciting things is um, that apparently, and I don't know this for a fact, but from the conversations that I did have with uh, the 343 people out in Seattle, it looks like the storyline of the next Halo game is going to be even more Developed and it's really going to be Master Chief's story and Cortana's story. Wow! Uh, and uh, so I think that in addition to the what they're going to be coming out with in terms of gameplay, I think they're also going to be expanding the the story part of it uh, significantly, which should be a lot of fun for everybody. Very cool. When it comes to acting, are you you know doing it just by yourself and the voice director, or how do, how do the sessions work? Usually, uh, that's been the case. It's uh, uh, because Master Chief has is you know uh, somewhat isolated sure. as a character. Uh, yeah, I've always done it in a booth with uh, you know maybe the writers are on the phone and I you know Marty's been in the room with me. But uh, most of the time, it's been uh, just me. Now, if we get into a situation where there's a lot of dialogue. Uh, going back and forth, that may change because then it's it's much more helpful if you're a able to do it with the other actors in the room. But so far, it's just been a sort of a solo venture. Did you act on the Halo Legends uh, animated uh, cartoon? No, animated they cartoon. used they, <laughs> they they didn't use any of the uh, they didn't use any of the original actors on that. That was. Um, and I don't really know a lot about that other than the fact that it was done by a series of uh, several Japanese uh, directors 
uh, and the the voicing was you know sort of dubbed in mm-hmm. uh, um, later. But no, for whatever reason, they chose not to use any of the original uh, uh, people on that. Man, that's too bad because I yeah, it, I enjoyed it. it. I, I thought yeah, it was, really it was fun. It, and again, those were uh, opportunities to where the storyline obviously there was no gameplay, so the the you know the storyline got expanded. But like I said, they made a they made a creative choice there not to do that. You say you're a sci-fi fan. I want to know about yeah. uh, what, are, what are some of your science fiction uh, TV and film favorites or, or books for that matter? Well, um, you know, probably the usuals. Uh, I mean, my favorite film of all time is 2001 A Space Odyssey. That I feel like in some ways that changed my life. I can remember back in 1968 seeing it in the in the theaters for the first time and just being – you know, completely blown away. And, uh, you know, the mo- most of the Alien series, um, you know, most of um, of Dick's work. Uh, sure. I feel okay, both, Dick, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'm bi- a big fan of his. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, science fiction is a uh, – it's a hard genre to be a fan of because <laughs> – so much of it is crap. You bet. No, <laughs> you know? you're right, man. Especially the stuff that ends up on the big screen. So much of it is like, oh, really? But occasionally you get those gems, and uh, that makes it all worthwhile. I mean, I thought, uh, you know, from a TV per- uh, perspective, I thought that the Battlestar, the remaking oh my God, yeah. of, of Battlestar Galactica was, was fabulous. But that's, you know, it, they're, unfortunately, they're few and far between. So us sci-fi fans have to suffer <laughs> through a lot to uh, to get to the good stuff. Do you have any uh, love of any of the superhero genre? Um, it's okay if you don't. Don't worry, man. I, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, tra- you know, other than the characters that that uh, moved me as a as a young kid, you know, sitting in the barbershop reading the Superman comics. Sure, sure. You know, uh, I don't know that I would say that I. Uh, um, you know that there's anybody that's that's a that I'm a tremendous fan of. No. Okay. No worries, man. Um, well, and again, I mean, I, I know that uh, from a comic book standpoint, a lot of uh, the, the comic book readers certainly play Halo and, and you know, we'll put Master yeah. Chief right there with uh, their favorite superheroes. Well, it is. And that's been one of the interesting things about playing this character is that at some point I realized that uh, Master Chief is to this generation what a Superman or a Batman or a Fantastic Four, or or you know Captain America was to another generation. Uh, I taught that there was a guy that came over actually the other day to fix my computer, and uh, he didn't know he didn't know me from Adam. And and uh, I said, do you are you? I said, are you are you a gamer? Do you play video games? He goes, oh yeah, oh yeah. I said, do you play Halo? And he says, well, do I play Halo? Geez, I wouldn't have got through college without playing Halo. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's not the first person who has who has said something very similar that you know to me, and so you realize that you know I've I've been fortunate enough to have some small part in a character that uh, has has quickly become an icon, and uh, and has that sort of uh, uh, you know like I said you know me sitting in the barbershop as a young boy, you know reading Batman. That 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 to uh, this generation, that's who Master Chief is, and it's uh, it's uh, pretty exciting to have some, you know, small part in that. Too funny. Halo Five comes out on Tuesday. That was our conversation from 2012. Me and Steve Downs. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, I hope you don't wait too long in line uh, midnight Tuesday to get your copy of Halo Five. 
Uh, in the meantime, let's go back to last month's Cincy Comic Con, where uh, one of the highlights of the weekend was a great panel about fables. Uh, it featured the writers Bill Willingham, the creator of Fables, Matthew Sturgis, the creator of uh, Jack of Fables, and um, Chris Robertson, who wrote the Cinderella miniseries that they did, several of them. And uh, they uh, have just done excellent work in the Fables universe and uh, created uh, really one of the more distinct Vertigo titles of the 21st century. you got to hand it to the guys. It was an amazing run. Great artists, of course, Mark Buckingham and uh, the like, and we talk about them as well, all the various contributors to Fables and Jack of Fables and Cinderella. But uh, this is a great opportunity to get the three writers together and get their thoughts as things were winding down. Matthew Sturgis was still writing Wolf in the Fold, the digital and print comic based on the uh, Fables video game. But uh, like I said, great chance to talk to these guys as they say goodbye after 150 issues of Fables, I forget how many uh, trades of Jack of Fables, and uh, at least two or three of, uh, of Cinderella. So pretty neat run for the Fables universe. Let's hear from the creators themselves now on the Fables panel from Cincy Comic Con to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. Does anybody know how they got the, uh, the visual effect of the Red Son of Krypton in the opening sequence of Superman the Movie? No. no. It's a uh, it's tickets. Oh, okay. And then there's a raffle right after our panel yeah. and the art auction. And so uh, the potential is there. So yeah, if you have questions. Although, as I said, there now, officially start. Yeah. So why doesn't Hitler drink tequila? Anyone? <laughs> Makes a meme. <laughs> and on that note, okay. No, um, welcome to this spoiler-free celebration of fables and I'm very excited about this because I too am a fables fan and I 
you get knocked my socks off from issue one. And uh, I'm sorry that it's wrapping up, although I know there are post-Fables plans and everything, but sure. very happy to have on the panel uh, the writers behind this wonderful phenomenon. Uh, we've got Chris Robertson. Check and see if he's wearing socks. Is he? Me or you? I don't. Yeah, he's lying. He, he did not get his socks knocked off. You can put that on. Oh, that's okay. true. All right, sir. So, but we have Chris Robertson, everybody. Matthew Sturgis. And uh, the, the father of fables himself, Bill Williams. John Saunders, I host a podcast called Word Balloon. I've had some of these men on, on my show separately and hope to have them again in the future, but it's great to have them collectively and, and talk about this wonderful phenomenon. And Bill, we should start with, with you and the genesis of fables. The genesis of fables. Um, okay, I'll, I'll do the serious sentence. Um, I've been writing folklore and fables esque characters into all my funny books regardless. I mean, uh, The Elementals was supposed to be a superhero book and I kept putting folklore characters into it. Um, and uh, they've been sneaking into everything else. So on one level at least, Fables was just letting that other shoe drop, admitting to myself that apparently this is what I like writing. So why don't we just formally adopt that as a uh, premise uh, uh, for a story. Um, I, I liked, uh, I was doing things like that leading up to it, uh, and it just sort of finally, you know, fell into place. Um, it's such a boring genesis in the sense of, I mean, the, the well, did you go to Vertigo or did, did, did they come to you and say something? Because as you said, you had that success in the 80s and 90s with a lot of different things. Yeah, here's how it ended up with Vertigo is uh, I was doing work for Vertigo Comics. Uh, much of my stuff was getting critical uh, success, but no sales. I was selling sometimes in the high dozens. Um, <laughs> so I had a string of things that were pre-canceled uh, before the first one came out. Um, and uh, with Fables, I was working on something else. I did not think it was a Vertigo book, uh, because Vertigo at the time at least was a lot of pouty lip teenagers rebelling on scooters with lip piercings. And I, you know, God bless, I love pouty lip teenagers rebelling on scooters with lip piercing books. I just am not capable of writing one. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll work on this and I'll find some publisher for it. And uh, Shelley Bond, the editor of Fables and the editor of, of my work for Vertigo at the time was on the phone with me trying to pitch me the idea of pitching her a series Shelley Bond gets ideas and then goes and tries to find a writer to pitch them to her. Um, and then feels no obligation to actually accept the book. That, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Don't even bring that up again. Um, we were talking about this other thing where she wanted two sassy female detectives in New York. And I didn't really have a two sassy female detectives in New York story in me, but she was trying hard. And I go, this is great, Shelley but I gotta hang up now because I, I wanna finish up this proposal for a, a new series. And she got very territorial and said, what new series? And I explained, Shelly, this is not a Vertigo thing. And I explained Fables, et cetera, in, in, in uh, brief. And she said, yeah, that's a Vertigo series and you're uh, submitting it to me by Monday. Uh, and, uh, and then we're gonna accept it. Um, for all of her faults, uh, she told no lie there. I got it in by Monday. 
by the end of the week they accepted it as a series which was uh, phenomenal um, DC has the record of waiting eight years to accept finally a proposed series that was seven issues long it was called uh, Hammerlock and it was Chris Sprouse's first work but it was not his first published work because well eight years um, so can I, can I parenthetically ask a question yeah I wasn't talking to Mike so people can hear um, you said that you didn't feel like it was a vertigo book because of the kind of things that they did. Sure. Um, I'm curious to know, did you, because vertigo was and has been ostensibly mature readers. Yes. Right? But uh, in the interim, the rest of the line has matured up. So that really, tonally, you don't see a lot of difference between a lot of the superhero titles and a lot of the stuff that's traditionally been vertigo. That is true. So I know from my experience with a zombie that I was pushed to age it up to make it more mature, ostensibly. Did did you do that? Yes. Were you forced to do that? I know. Suggested I'm, to do that. I was pushed to. Uh, traditionally, you have editors telling you to take the sex and the cussing out of a book, and, and here was the other way. It's like, could you put more sex and cussing in? Um, and you didn't mind doing that because certainly in your previous work you had well adult things in it. No, but I got it out of my system. I I, I would have been much happier if, if Fables was an all ages thing. Oh, okay. uh, and you moved away from it pretty quick. I moved away from it as soon as they were looking. In the interim, I've been yelled at by uh, certain people who I will not name that says that she never, never pushed me to do that, and that is rewriting history. But. Anyway. See, I, I had the benefit on my deal of there were things that Mike Allred would not grow up. Mm. So um, we there was a built-in okay. kind of safeguard, and, but there was one time I had a hilarious gag um, that Mike was uncomfortable with because what it was, was that? Um, uh, well, my dog heard me swear. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, there's a character who's uh, dead, and then it, there's there's a body under a sheet, and you hear it start making like a little noise, and the noise gets louder. And it's it's this, it's it's a fricative, so it's like, and then like no, yeah, or something like that. Anyway, it, anyway, the gag ended with her sitting up right and just screaming, "Fuck!" Right? Yeah. And uh, Mike had a really serious phone call with me. He called me up and he's like, "Yeah, I'm really not okay with that." So I had to take that was the one instance of a four-letter word that would have been in my zombie. Yeah. That I had to take it up. See, now can I inject a parenthetical into your injected parenthetical? <laughs> sure. Because here's, and I have to know if you ever did this, you know, like Shelley Bond will often, you know, ask you to include things in a story, you know. <laughs> I'm wondering, did you ever use the excuse, well, I would, but Mormon theology prohibits <laughs> that being drawn, and because she would never check. It's I, I should have thought of that. I should have thought of that. But it was kind of an interesting, like, uh, did you ever feel this? Because I would have to, like, let's have somebody on the best book. Like, all right, so I had to write a scene where someone's on the best book in the shoe. I don't see a lot there of that. There was a lot of that. There was, uh, fortunately, a lot of fables uh, escaped that. Every once in a while, she'd ask for something. Uh, when I introduced the two dryad characters, she asked if they could have a romance and kiss. And I said, well, it's possible, but they are established right away as brother and sister, so, um, you know, if you want a Lannister sort of thing happening here, but it, uh, so she backed out of that, but when we would try other projects, since she, it was pretty established 
earlier on that I that she could not mess with faith. But she would ask for other things. Remember, we were I, I forget even what we were trying to pitch. And she asked it was, called, anyone, it was called Deep Six Detective. It was a spooky oh, female detective. Yes. Yeah. And she wanted extreme water sports. And, and she just by which she right. meant like people on jet skis. Oh, that's very clear. We're pretty sure. We're pretty sure. Wow, this is an adult. Uh, but she just asked. People. Oh, yeah. Your kids here. I know. Oh, God, I said a good joke. I know. Come by the table later. Wow. So anyway, Fables got picked up quicker than anything, which is good because that weekend after that Friday, they said, "Yep, we're doing it." I saw the very first um, Shrek ad for the first Shrek movie. Okay. And there was everything Fables was going to have right there. Oh, didn't the 10th Kingdom air right around there too? Well, no, the 10th Kingdom was before. I, I grew up on the 10th Kingdom. You know, everyone's saying Fables started the thing. No, 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 no. Fables, I was cashing in on something, a trend I could see happening. Interesting. Okay. But anyway, I would never have said, I, I called them up and said, look, you've probably seen the Shrek ads. Someone beat us to it. I am withdrawing my my proposal and I will not uh, hold it against you that you don't want to do it now. And they laughed and said, I'm stupid. Uh, that Shrek and Fables will be nothing alike. And it turns out that they really were sure. But I, I, I had that occurred before I finished my proposal, I would, ne- I would put it on the shelf and never approach it again because someone beat me to it. Very cool. Yeah. Man. Because, yeah, I, I mean, and certainly, God, I, I feel for you for, you know, Grimm and Once Upon a Time, and certainly what's, what's you know, transpired with those television series, and it's like, well, you know, that's all really cute, but I remember when Fables was being talked about as a potential television series, yeah. and didn't happen. Who needs a TV series? Well, I, yes, said, said I saw me, and I respect that. People have TV series made other comic books are douches. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have more of that talk tomorrow when we have our spotlight on uh, Chris. Uh, but uh, no, I, um, so, so Ben Medina was the original co-creator. I always, it's weird because I'd forgotten that and I assumed it was Bucky. No, well, but yeah, tell me, help, help me. Here's the thing, and this is going to sound evil, and, and perhaps it is, I'm, I'm, I'm too close to it to see all the moral implications. Fables happened just at the time when the, the big to-do over Miracle Man was happening where no one really knew who owned it. And several people were laying claim to all or pieces of it. Yes. And Miracle Man had set uh, uh, dormant for, what, 20 years? Something like that. Yes. And I said to myself, a book needs a captain, so I was going to keep the copyright and and not do a co-creator. So, uh, Lamadina drew the first arc, okay. but I created the characters visually and okay. and uh, written so that there could be a single creator for no not because I'm reading to I'm I'm all mine, but I realized every every series needed one person who could say we'll do this or we won't do this, and I think. I think it works as a template in the sense that Fables has kept many families well paid, well, you know, whatever for for 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at that time and now, it, it's finally been worked through, so that Miracle Man is now coming back. But all that time, these these poor people that were like throwing money, and and uh, my agent was also Neil Gaiman's lawyer for the whole Miracle Man, oh, wow. so like that. 
if you would know the amount of money that was spent to clean up who owns the rights there, and I'm just getting one person struggle on there or something, it's never, never going to earn back what was spent to try and... Wow. Well, you, you kept Bucky busy in the meantime. I did. I did. Well, so anyway. Well, and, and, and the building up, all right, and, and, and I get that, and, I, and as, again, no, I, we all acknowledge that. But yeah, I wondered in terms of the original team, you know, writer and artist, in terms of, uh, I, I, I had forgotten that Lampadino had that first arc before, yeah. because I really do associate uh, Bucky's style and framing, literally his framing, as we know from the interiors of Fables. And was that, an, like, how did that invention happen visually? Well, what happened was, uh, Remember, at the time before Fables, no one stayed on a book very long. It had been so long since anyone had done that. Yeah, there were two five days like, were over like that. You know, day sims stayed on Cerebus forever, but that was that was uh, the exception to prove the rule. It's just no one did that. So the the idea was, I would write this in arcs, and we would get a different artist for every arc, just like Sandman. Oh, okay. Okay. So I had two arcs finished. Uh, the Legends in Exile and Animal Farm, and Shelley and I had a list of artists to go to. Lamadina was one, uh, Bucky was another, and apparently Shelley gave Bucky his choice of which of the two arts he wanted. He was just coming off of Spider-Man, he was tired of drawing buildings, he said, I'll do Animal Farm because it's, it's rural and it's animals. Uh, so he sort of chose to be the second guy I see. Okay. But since it was going to be different artists every art, that really didn't matter. Except that at the end of Animal Farm, Bucky very politely called us up and said, Oh, by the way, I'm staying on the series. This is my book. <laughs> and because he's so polite, or at least, see, I don't know that he's not that. It's the accent. accent. It's the accent. I think it's really is. I'm going to take other people's jobs forever. Yeah, I think I think he's an evil villain because all the villains have, uh, in movies have English accents. I mean that's true, and he just used that accent to you know it's like well he seems to be sure about I guess he is the regular artist because why would he say that to us if he wasn't? So, yeah, he, he, just he made that decision and then stuck with it for 13 years. Hey, well, that's, we're all happy about that. That's unheard of. No, Archie Buckingham, ladies and gentlemen, who is not here, so in abstention, we, we will applaud his, his efforts on behalf of 15 years of Fables. And, and truly, and Matthew, when we talk a bit about Jack and everything, I want to talk about the, and, and both of you actually, the Jack creative team as well, because they're amazing. But I, yeah, what I like the, the core first, and then I, I want to talk about, you know, when, when each of you have also contributed to Fables as well. Um, and. You know, while we're on the subject, obviously Steve Lealoa, obviously a beautiful work. Yeah. And, and yeah, whatever you want to say about it is, is you know, the, their, their combination. They were a wonderful combination. I could not see it at first. Uh, Bucky's style and Steve Lealoa style together, but it, it, others could, and it worked wonderfully. And Steve did another surprising thing, which is he stayed on the boat forever. Uh, Steve was there forever. Uh, Todd Klein was there forever. Bucky, Bucky was there forever. Uh, people stayed with the book, and and that is you know, amazing to me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Todd Klein is the only person who worked on every issue of all of the Fables books. No, counting the spinoffs, because because of Wolf Among Us. Yes, he did not. Like oh, oh wow! Wolf Among Us. Wolf Among Us broke the Todd Klein record. Oh, yeah. Crazy. But otherwise, he lettered absolutely everything. Yeah. So who was that other letter? 
Um, it's been a couple of people. It was uh, Sal Cipriano, but then he left, and now it's, uh, I can't remember who it is right now. I apologize. Dan Norris. And, and, of course, the James Jean covers. Good Christ. Yeah, and, the stack of, and the stack of Eisner's that said covers, I believe, uh, got over the years. I gotta tell you, he was a godsend. Uh, he is literally the only example I know of the overnight success. Um, you've heard the term, you're an overnight sensation. And the, the response, like once when, when Simonson was was doing Thor, and someone said to you, I, my very first convention was little me that had done nothing yet, and Simonson and the little home wall convention. But we got to sit together and act like pros together. Um, someone comes up and said, oh, you're an overnight phenom. It was Simonson's run on Thor, which if you've never seen it, it was just terrific. Including frog And he Thor. said something like, yeah, it only took me 20 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> and that's usually the case. You don't see the years of trouble. James Dean literally walked out of art school. And I don't, I, yes, you do a lot of work in art school and you prepare, but that is preparing time. That's not, can I make it time? The next day, he had an appointment to show his stuff around in D.C., um, and he was hired by us to do Fables on that day, and just walked into to famous success. And the unfortunate thing is, I'm spacing his name. Esau Andrews. Esau Andrews, who was a wonderful cover artist, and would have gotten hired that day, if not for the fact that he picked the same day that James Jean picked to show his stuff around, to show his stuff. Actually, they came together, but yeah. But, but I was a choice of one or the other, so the embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I was lucky enough to have Isai Andrews uh, do covers for House of Mystery. And um, he yeah. did beautiful, beautiful work oh, on that book. And uh, I, I, very recently I took a, uh, a cover in to like a Michaels to get it framed. Uh, I walk in there and the guy behind the counter goes, oh, that's Isai Andrews, she's one of my favorite artists. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it's from this comic book House of Mystery that I, that I wrote, and he was like, oh, okay. But yeah, his... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. Well, that's the thing, because honestly, I keep making this point, and truly taking nothing away from our panel, but a great, great writers, if you don't have a great artist as well, you're kind of like working from a deficit from, from page one, because that is what intrigues us. It is... The James Jean cover, it is the, the Len Medina and Mark Buckingham art, and Tony Akins and others, uh, that, that, that followed in Brian Bowen doing covers. I mean, that's the thing, that's the calling card. Well, and, and, but it takes, obviously, the story foundation. Well, yeah, but you can, you can make a decision immediately on an artist. You can take a glance and decide whether or not you want to see more. It's hard to take a glance at someone's writing and decide whether or not you want to see more. So, yeah. so yeah, the artist is, is the, the, uh, the vehicle uh, choice if you if you want. And it can be tricky too because like there have been times when I've read somebody's work but got people I like personally. Uh, not YouTube. I'm not talking about you. But people like I've read somebody's work for a long time and they're like, I don't really think this is for me. Like, you know, like I, I, I can see that there was quality to it. Yes. I know that it's good. I know that they're decent folks. And after reading like 20 inches or something, I'd be like, I don't think I like this. I don't think this is something I want to read more. So it can take a while. It can. And it can go the other way. I didn't think I read that zombie because I hate zombie fiction. But you, you did something else with it. And, you, and she wasn't a mindless idiot, which is what I hate most about zombie fiction. I did something. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I would guess, you know, and really, I, I don't want to, as 
we're early enough in the conversation. Please, if you have questions, start lining up now because I don't want us to run into the problem we had in the last panel and us to go over. So please, it's an open discussion. We're just gonna keep it spoiler free in terms of how a fable's ended, but I'm happy to you know, get into talk about characters and stuff. The microphone is right there. What so, panel follows this one? Um, well, I think they're doing the art auction and the, and the, the uh, raffle. Yeah, screw them. We'll sell you yeah, as long as you want. No, no, no. So, but no, yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, but you know, from from arc one, honestly, I mean, just the idea of turning, you know, just the humanization of these of these animals and characters, and modernization of them, and and just these classic choices to take, you know, the big bad wolf and turn him into this trench coat wearing investigator constable of of Fable Town and stuff, and and. You know, uh, certainly the initially being Snow, the, the the key and most intriguing characters in that, um, just you know, humanizing all these people. You know, King Cole, uh, everybody, Prince Charming. I mean, the, the, the list can go on, and your choices for them were just uh, you know kind of really amazing and 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 really surprising, given that we it's at the same time familiar territory because they are the fables we grew up with but making story choices that none of us were expecting. Clearly that's the trick, and I'm sure it was, and likely, you know, what was the impetus for, I guess, that, that, that thought? I mean, that's really the germ of the, the, the books. It was, a, it was a practical choice. The idea uh, was always that it would be uh, fairy tale characters in modern times. And it would be the same characters you read about in the original stories. So I needed to account for all the time that happened between the original stories and now. Um, if you are not familiar with um, Castle Waiting by Linda Medley, uh, it preceded Fables, um, uh, and it is a wonderful book, which is in the same territory, which is what happens next after Happily Ever, Happily Ever After. In her case, it's what it was right after, immediately next. Uh, I went a little further than that, and I had to fill in, they could not have just sat dormant for all this time. So it's like, what do I want them to be now? What is the essential value of this character to me? And all this, and how do I get them in that place? Big Bad Wolf was my favorite fable character. Second favorite was the Pied Piper of Hamlin. I guess I like the bad boys. Um, and I wanted to use, I specifically liked him as a kid because he was the first character I was aware of to show up in more than one tale. He, you know, had the whole run-in with Red Riding Hood, and he had the run-in with the pigs. And in my mind, I'm sure in the original tales they were not the same Big Bad Wolf, and in all the Aesop's fables they were different, but in my mind they were all the same. I love comics, crossovers were important, so that's why uh, the Big Bad Wolf was important. Um, I could have kept him as the villain, uh, but then uh, I could only use them one or two times and then he'd have to go because I, I hate ineffectual heroes. If Big Bad Wolf is the villain and he's, he's still popping up 10 years into the uh, series and going, boo, it's me again, that is not a story about how villainous the villain is, it's a story about how incompetent the heroes are, that they can't seem to get rid of this guy. Um, I once got to write a Joker story in which he publicly thanked Batman, his partner, uh, because they did have a partnership because Joker go gets out of the asylum, goes crazy, kills some people, and Batman would come along whenever Joker's getting a little overly tired to catch him and put him where he can rest and recoup for the next- day. Yes, 
<laughs> and it's like this cycle. Uh, because the person who needs to be fired is the head of security at Arkham Asylum. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, the person who needs to be fired is, is you know, if, if Gotham was a Republican-run town, the death penalty would have taken care of all of Batman's problems. <laughs> anyway, but that's, uh, you know, anyway uh, uh, the big bad wolf. Donald Trump has a job for yeah. you in his administration. He had to be a good guy because I didn't want to write a story about incompetent good guys. Uh, so the the story backstory filling in how does bad guy become a good guy was everything and you got hints of that with as a series. Uh, but now, did did you know from the beginning about his parentage, or was that something that you worked out as you went along to explain that one aspect? I knew I needed to know why he could huff and puff because wolves don't do that. And so I knew that he was the illegitimate son of the North Wind. I did not know then that there would ever be a story to explain that. It was just going to be a toss-off thing. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, that I did. Him I put a lot of work in. Some of the ones that really surprised me, like Boy Blue was supposed to be just a background character. Flycatcher was supposed to be just a background character. And Totenkinder was supposed to be just a witch that was Helpful from time to time, but never uh, fully fleshed out. Those are the ones that yeah. that grew in the telling. And maybe too, in the sense of, well, let's explain this and stuff like that. I was never fables to work as fables needed to be fairy tale characters. Therefore, you don't bring on gods. And I knew the North Wind was godlike, so he would never, never appear. Yeah. But then he did. So. Can I ask another question? No, I love the fact that you guys are talking amongst yourselves. All right, which is going to um, so, so those three characters outstripped your initial expectations. Yeah. Um, there was more grist to the mill there than you thought. Yeah. Were there characters that you thought you would be spending more time with, and yeah, but they just sort of withered on the vine? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Can I guess one? Go. Because you, I like what you guys did with it, but I always felt like Mobley didn't get as much screen time as I think you would have originally expected that you were going to give it away. Mowgli, uh, the entire Jungle Book cast was when I was thinking of doing a uh, spin-off. Um, uh, Jack of Fables use it. Yeah, Jack of Fables was almost Mowgli. Wow. As in Mowgli and the Jungle Book guys, and he was going to be, you know, our Tarzan. Yeah. 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 Sure. Right. But, and yeah, I never got back to him. Uh, the nice thing is, is those are still public domain characters, and as long as it's not called Fables, yeah. he's still on the table. And well, there's that other guy, the the smoking dude, who never actually shows up on panel. Right, right. Uh, he's feather, just a feather cat or feather top. Feather top. And I, I, I think I what you had. A, I remember on a panel once, I made a joke, I cracked a joke about, it, and I think I completely deflated whatever plans you had for it. You probably you ruined so much because <laughs> he shows up in the pro story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was to bring him on stage. So basically, there, there are a couple of field, there's like three field agents out there, Mobley being one of them. They kind of roam around and do stuff. And well, I can't remember the dude's name. What is his? Uh, at the top? Yeah, yeah. Mobley and uh, I think Hot Frog from the, is it Amber Pierce? Uh, yeah, but Top's what I'm thinking of. Basically, in order to su survive, he has to smoke a pipe constantly. Right, right. And so I made this joke. You know, I asked what was going on with that guy, 
Um, and then on a panel in San Diego, I made a joke. I was like, well, he's just stuck somewhere in Eastern Europe because he can't get on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. And that did it. I, from time to time, I would take time off and start working out how he gets back. Yeah. And a lot of that, when I did the Mowgli story about how he hunted Bigby, yeah. I used some of the, the, the travel routes yeah. that I was going to use for Feather Top and never got around to. Because he can't get anywhere anymore. He, <laughs> He can't get back to the States because we have the whole no smoking. Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. All right, let's get to some uh, audience questions, please. Um, I'm not No, no, project circus. It's for the podcast, by all means. Uh, yeah. Talk up. Long, long story short, I was down talking to the guys to sign up my book case. I thank you again. The stupid question is, is that what exactly, as far as the writing, as far as the drawing and so forth, what my two parts one which was your favorite and what was the one that you loathed or you had the hardest problem time dealing with in, in fables in fables or jack well i was going to say all three of you can answer this question yeah right yeah, yeah. 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 material absolutely it's just me. my my favorite changes a lot um i have a fondness for what all right to say that i gotta say this it sort of became clear when, when Mark Buckingham was taking over the series is that he, he wasn't going to get to do every one because he needed breaks and uh, he could not do a book every month. So we worked in shorter stories with other artists. Um, people got to call it, including their editors, called them fill-in stories. And they were never fill-in stories in the sense of, yes, they were different artists, but, but I tried to make every story important. My favorite in the sense of it turning out more or less line for line like I envisioned. And the worst thing to do to ruin a story is to start writing it. You know, you, you ruin things by beginning because in your mind they're perfect. But the Rodney and June thing, the, the two wooden soldiers that wanted to become real, uh, the kind of Pinocchio thing. Uh, uh, Jim Fern drew that, right? And Jim Fern drew that. That's beautiful. It came out almost exactly like I envisioned. So that's that's favorite to me. Loathe. Let's let's take other things because I'm gonna have to think about the, the loathe part. I don't want to indict anyone. And again, but it's one of those things to where let's face it, we all know professions. You love doing this or that and then there sure, uh, really, yeah. I gotta well, the, I think both my answer to both is the same thing. It's something nobody ever saw outside the offices. Because Jim Jim Fern drew because so they because Bill is Bill. Bill, you have certain, I won't say this wrong way. Um, there were fears at certain times that you wouldn't necessarily be as productive as you should be. Oh yeah. yeah. And um, so uh, they would every once in a while like commission like, like, fill, like inventory, 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 inventory stories. stories. And they use, like Shelley would use them as tryouts for those of us who would be doing other things. Yeah, my um, first uh, my first ever paid comics work is a Fables inventory script that was drawn by Tony Deakins. Yeah, no kidding. And it's sitting in a drawer somewhere in DC. So I think so. My first one was the Jack and Fables fill I did with Tony. Yeah. And uh, but the second thing I did uh, was a Fables inventory story that Jim Fern drew, um, which is, has now been mooted because I don't think the setting even exists anymore. 
but it was it was the movie Chinatown, but set in Little Town, the, the, the little <laughs> small town, small town, <laughs> which is the, the little where all the little people are under the tree in the, in the farm. And uh, it was this greedy crime drama about like a, like the, like drug like people. Yes. People like sneaking pixie dust out of Everland, and kids were getting all messed up and floating at the ceiling. And um, there was also a bunch of like racial tension with the gnomes, who I was basically playing with the Smurfs, because all they, they only said gnome, that was the only word in their language. Uh, but there was like the one affirmative action hire on the police force, it was a gnome. Wait, remind me, was that before it grew? We could only say grew. Yeah. yeah, so you, all right. And, uh, I just had so much fun with it. Like it was just this one twin, ridiculous twenty-two-page murder mystery set in this ridiculous setting. It was a lovely story. It was drawn so well. Yeah, and like the like the, the tearaway kids who like would go out and get messed up on pixie dust and like drive around in Barbie's car and crash and stuff. And no one ever saw it. Could you guys like make those stories like you would you know? I'm sure this could be an ultimate omnibus or something. Could we possibly see these stories? It's I'm funny. I'm sure. That it's tough, you know. The thing is, those things that are put in drawers are literally put away in drawers. That, that lost I'm sure that they, they, we reminded them. They were like they, these were not. They weren't inked or lettered, so they were yeah. like okay. fully penciled. They could. They were. They were books that could be made ready to go in like a week, mm-hmm. if if Bill just disappeared on a, a Hogan's Heroes marathon or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I get that. But yeah, in terms of you know, because guy, you always those two tomorrows are the like. I think right now, certain people that will not be named again uh, are desperate for any fable stuff. So maybe, maybe now's the time to. Well, they like a rarities and B sides collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that against your wishes, though? No. Okay. No, no, no. I'd love to see that. But see, I, I don't think you have to have that that adherence to continuity that uh, that some do. Like, you know, well, these always could have happened. I mean, yeah. it's not, they, they were right, written right. to take place during sure. things out the elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's for and, and Matthew, your your uh, favorite. Uh, my favorite. Uh, what is it? My favorite what? Everything about doing everything. Oh, Whether it was a story, whether it was. It was a, doing. Oh, that's easy. It was doing Babe Blue Ox. Absolutely. Oh yeah, Babe Blue Ox pages were the the most fun. Um, that I ever have ever had writing comics, and it was like you just get to write this like structured gag, and because of the way that it was set up, it was always funny. You know, like it, it was like it was just comedy gold, and the whole thing took like 20 minutes to do, and then you got your whole page rate for it. And it was like it's like you're getting away with murder, and it was so much fun. And we did it every month, and um, we did, and and. Before that, I could not understand how these gag-a-day cartoonists could come up with so much material. Uh, but with Babe, it just it clicked. It was, I was certain the first one we wrote that we would never think of a second thing. And, and that, yeah. So. Everyone, there was a two-part Flycatcher baseball story that I don't loathe it, but that came about as far out from what I imagined in my head when I set out to write it, so so maybe something like that. Very cool. Thank you, John. Get a get a chip for your uh, troubles, sir. You can, can we get a check in for the uh, raffle. Awesome. So.
I, I would say probably the, the least favorite thing for anyone is writing panel descriptions, right? Oh, okay. really? You like writing panel descriptions? Yeah. Hate You're writing free descriptions. Sorry. Okay. Interesting. Sure. Now, at the beginning, you stated you wanted to kind of keep it split and free, but yeah. when I was at the table earlier, I, I had a... I told you, it's, go ahead and ask yeah, it's 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 whether or not to answer. It's the panel's call, so feel free. Yeah. Yeah. Issue 150, Rose Red spoke with someone who changed her mind. God, this is so Shatner-esque at time right now. I feel really, really weird about it, but what was, was she speaking with? So, who has not yet read 150? Who does, of those, who does not want 150 spoiled in any way? Are you, see, I, I told you, go ahead, put your hand in your ears and go, earmuffs. <laughs> There's a scene where you want to know who it was she was speaking to, and was it who you think it was? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Figured that could be Okay. Uh, as far as the success of the digital comic, uh, The Wolf Among Us, do you see that? Isn't I mean, that lovely? In 38, I mean, I bought the game, so I'm yeah. fantastic, but. But it adds so much to the game. I know, go ahead. But do you see any other story arcs you could uh, adapt into that weekly digital format? Here, here's the thing I'm retired from fables. This is the only guy on the panel who's still doing fables, so ask him. I don't know. So I win. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I think you should take this question yeah, seriously. Okay, I will, I will, because here's the thing. I, I don't know if, if, how many of you have sampled the Wolf Among Us uh, comic, because I think for some people I, that I've talked to at, at panels and stuff, it was kind of like a tough sell. And I think it was, because it's like a, a comic book based on a video game, based on a comic book, you know, based on fairy tales, based on things that happened to Neil, Neil Gaiman's head. You know, like, this is the origin <laughs> of these ideas. Um, but we, uh, at and my writing partner, Dave Justice, and I uh, spent a, long, a lot of time and effort uh, making the comic, and it's beautifully drawn by the artists who, who they've got working on it. Um, and we've added a lot to the story, which was already a very good story, uh, which I was surprised to see when I played the game. I didn't realize that games like this really existed. I don't know much about video games. So when I played the game, I was like, oh, this is actually a really good, really compelling story. And I think, Bill, had you had something to do with its genesis, right? <laughs> No, I was uh, hired. Uh, well, for one thing, DC made the deal with Telltale Games without my knowledge or cooperation. They happened to remember to mention it. Oh, by the way, we're doing a video game. Um, so my agent went separately to Telltale Games, and we made a deal where I worked as a traffic cop, which was my job was to make sure they didn't go off the rails. Um, I That's think what traffic cops do. Yeah. That's more like the, the guys who stand a train. Yeah, fine, 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 fine. Look, I'm retired. I don't have to worry about nice metaphors. Um, I think I told them at one point, reminded them that Bigby couldn't go to the farm. And I think I reminded them once that Bigby couldn't drive. I may have... It's a lot of taxi rides in that game. Yeah, I may have mentioned that he uh, can't be in a shootout. Well, he can be in a shootout. He can't participate by shooting. Because yeah, he, he's never used a gun. He stated. So it was that kind of thing. It was keep them on track. The problem is, is they knew the material frontwards and backwards, and they needed very, very little help keeping them on track. I got paid for it, and I felt, you know, you talk about feeling guilty getting paid for the babe pages. 
I, I mean, I cashed the check, but I did very little for it other than say, wow, guys, this is terrific. But I, I, I will say, to continue answering your question, that there's a lot of um, additional material that we've added to the story of Wolf Among Us, uh, especially around the character of Bloody Mary and the Crooked I mean, Man. I think what he was asking is like, so once you finish the- I know what he's asking, Jesus Christ. Let <laughs> <laughs> me finish. Relax. We have all the time in the world, right? We have all the time in the world. Uh, we've got 14 minutes. Sure. Yes, so we've, we've added a bunch of this thing. And we also have done things where we have seeded ideas that if there were ever the opportunity to do more stories in this format or other formats, that we would have planted those seeds. So I think that there's, I don't think anyone is saying that there couldn't ever be more stories like that, but it, it would kind of be, you know, it would have to be something that was okayed by Bill, you know, beforehand, and and that he was real happy with the idea and all that stuff. I think Shelley and or Rowena, maybe one, maybe the other, uh, thinks I'm I'm disengaged from uh, Matt and Dave's work on The Wolf Among Us because I have never once uh, put in a correction. Uh, for one thing, I think I think they think that I should be the guiding. And, and give you a lot of editorial direction, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, you give someone a, a story and let them do what they can do with it. Uh, but the other thing is, is uh, uh, they're adhering wonderfully to the story in the game, and all the other stuff you're adding is just so terrific that even when I could say, well, you know, this could be a little continuity problem, it's like, now I just love it. And then the, the other input is to, you know, they, they first tried to run by, you know, corrections by me, mm -hmm. so that we could each do a round of corrections. Like, you guys can catch those. You, they don't need three people telling them that there's a typo on, um, you know, page whatever. So, uh, so yeah, I get each issue. I read it, it's, it's terrific. Um, uh, my, my suggestion is if you have other ideas to keep going, if you want to, mm -hmm. you run it by Rowena and, and Shelly, at some point, they'll ask me if it's okay, and, and it's like, well, yes, Matt and Dave, of course, it's okay. Yeah. I will pre-approve. Well, there you have it. It's been recorded, right? Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> that is legally binding. Exactly. <laughs> Posted money. Here, take it. Make sure you get a pirate coin, my man. Absolutely. Uh, my first Thanks. question is, are you all that serious? Uh, do you have any information on season two of The Wolf Among Us? Actually, I do. Yeah. Um, I do. I spent some time talking to Adam Harrington, who is the voice of Bigby from uh, from the game. And I said, hey, do you have any information on season two of Wolf Among Us? And he said, they won't tell me anything. <laughs> so that is what I know definitively <laughs> about season two of Wolf Among Us. Uh, my second more serious question is, with the Wolf Among Us, there are Bloody Mary characters, um, Tiny Tim, Jersey Devil, these less fable-ish characters. Were there characters that you guys kind of wanted to use from lore or maybe more recent stories or anything like that that you thought, well, maybe this won't quite fit with fables, but then they kind of took maybe liberties with Wolf Among Us, so you guys kind of want to do something like that? Well, no, there was the opposite of that. Uh, I should have thought of the Crooked Man, and I will kick myself forever that I did. Of course, of course it should have been. Bluebeard was like the villain, but he was the penthouse villain. Every penthouse villain, you need a on-the-streets yeah. villain, too. Should have thought of that. I mean, I, I loved 
the, the series. As a matter of fact, a, a novel I plan to write just takes the, the, the Crooked Man, was it a nursery romance? Or the, the nursery yeah. Yeah. Ryan and replaces Crooked with Haunted because I wanted to do a Haunted House story. So there was a Haunted Man living in the, the, the Haunted house. Sixpence? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I had, um, I had I'm going to write that someday. That's as much as I, I should have made that. That's a great idea. I had the fudge a bit. I mean, because you, you set the precedent with some of the, the, some of the characters that were at the farm. Um, are more like nursery-run characters than they are like fables. Mm. A lot of them, yeah. But you know what? You know you guys know what the rule is, right? It has to be in public domain, and, and Bill has to want to do it. That's the one. Okay. Okay. Those, those, those are the two requirements for being a second one's harder than the first, maybe. What? The second one's harder than the first. No. Well, sometimes. Internet searches. I tried to stay away from mythology. Didn't always succeed, but yeah. Did how much of the tall tales of you know like? Some of the tall tale characters did you use everybody that you wanted to in, in terms of those they, would they qualify because they're public or are they public? Sure. Um, we we finally got to a lot of them in, in the Americana run that Jack. Yeah. Uh, some of them didn't quite fit in just the tone of it because these were supposed to be medieval characters that came to America, therefore people that were already in America didn't quite fit. But some of them like Jack because Jack as a tall tale character traveled to America with the people, and there are the American Jack tales where he continues to be the trickster and stuff. So we were able to incorporate some of that. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, mostly we stayed away from them until, uh, because of they didn't really fit in with the medieval thing until right. we did a thing where I'm certain uh, Matt came up with most of the uh, concept behind Americana, where now they did fit. So. Um, and all they needed to do to fit in with what had been done with fables is that the fable town didn't know that these other communities existed. Right. Yeah. They fit when they needed to. I understand. Very cool. Yes, yes. Yeah. Sure. Did you get a chip, sir? Oh, get a chip. If you want. You can take two because you answered the blaster question. Oh, uh, there you yeah. go. This is something you probably got tired of talking about a long time ago, and I never realized regards to the ones that put a time on TV that you said in the past that that very likely could have been, you know, not necessarily copied or anything like that. My question is more now, and there may be something worse I'm not aware of, is there a chance still of a Fables TV show in the future? Because I think Once Upon a Time would be very, very different other than concept. It's very, very different than what you did. Is there a chance of a, maybe after no time goes by with a TV show in the future? I think there's always a chance uh, the last, they were trying to make it a feature film, uh, you understand that the entire television and film industry seems to be dedicated to finding ways to say no to projects. Um, you ever hear the uh, the story that that is true that like when when a male lion or male lions come in and take over a prize by killing their rivals, the first thing they do is kill all the cubs so that the females will go into heat and and they'll be able to you know fill the pride with their cubs. Well, that's very much Hollywood in a nutshell. For example, um, uh, at Studio A, there was a champion for Fables, a series. Uh, he's great, we're gonna go, it's greenlit. It's gonna happen, but then that guy leaves for a better job over in Studio B. Meantime, the guy that gets uh, his job at Studio A immediately cancels every project because if they go, that guy from from before might get all the credit. Uh, so you don't want that, you want your own kids. So 
uh, in that method, fables as project, uh, I mean, everyone sort of vaguely knows some of the places it's been at. It's gotten killed so many times. Um, and uh, DC has turned down, one of the guys in charge of shopping fables as an idea turned down a lot of stuff because he had a very particular idea of what it should be. Uh, it may happen, it may not. I would have to think Hollywood seems always running out of ideas too, so I'd have to think they'd want to come back and throw the critical claim for it, but maybe, maybe not hopefully. It have, yeah. have to be a TV show rather than a movie. Don't apply thing. logic <laughs> to it. It doesn't work. I'd rather be a TV show than a movie, right? Because well, yeah, but don't apply logic. All right. And I know Bettis like went through a million directors and, and a couple studios with powers before it finally found its place at Sony to the point of the last FX pilot that got made but didn't air. I heard a couple of the writers say, God, they put so much, FX put so much money in powers, they'd be losing money if they committed to a series at this point. And it, because it was there for 10 years. So yeah, it's it's weird that way. But then again, I, when, every, when all thought was, all right, it's not gonna happen, boom, and that winds up its own. <coughs> so, sir, would you mind if the person behind you just gets an opportunity to ask a question before you ask another? If, if you don't mind, just, just I want everyone to get a chance to ask a question that wants to first. So. I just wanted to ask, uh, through the entire series, without ruining anything, who was the hardest character to kill? To kill? Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Without ruining anything, because I don't know how much you. Um, yeah, keep it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I meant without ruining, like yeah. 150. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know how deeply people read into the series. Um, 2010. <laughs> Let's give a five-year bet. We did a Cubs in Toyland thing. Anyone here who's not read yet there the you go. Cubs in Toyland book? Okay. That required one of the kids getting sacrificing himself right up until the actual panel in which he did it. Uh, Bucky and I were burning up the phone lines, deciding whether or not we dare do this. Uh, dare do this? It's possible. Sure. Um, that was rough. Yeah, it was oh, absolutely. It was rough. Um, and then everybody eats it from that point. Yeah. Okay. By by comparison. When Matt and I were doing Jack, if one of us got to the point where we asked the other, do we dare do this? That was the answer automatically yes. automatic yes. That flipped the yes switch. Which is how you ended which is how you got the ending of that series. Are we going too far? If it's yes, we did it. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, and could could one get the other laughing maniacally over the phone? Then that joke gets put in because you know, maybe it will work with a reader. Um, so Jack was a was a yes machine. It was really just like how over the top far can we go? I mean, he slept with his sisters, and and didn't really much regret it. It was just a terrible, you know, he's a terrible person. Um, with fables, it was yeah, uh, that's the closest. I, I feel like too in, in Jack of Fables, it's it's. This sort of catharsis you get of like fables is this, you know, it's this beautiful work of art, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to go like Godzilla, like smashing through it and breaking stuff. But there's something really fun about smashing through and breaking stuff, and I feel like Jack was the place where you could do that, where it's sort of like anything went, you know, um, it was always anything can happen day. And then if we want to say, um, 
Yeah, let's just kill everybody. You know, we can do that. But he, he did want the Shakespeare ending. Yeah. Can we end Jack? And I go, yeah, sure. Can we kill everyone? And I was like, well, Daryl can do this. I'm like, okay, now we have to. Awesome. But I, I we didn't, we didn't kill a baby. Yeah. We didn't kill a baby. Are you sure? Oh, that's right. The we baby. Did kill a baby. Like the old man. The old man. But he wasn't. Well, I guess he was a Jack Fables character. Yeah. He was another one that I didn't want to kill him because I was going to use him again, and I never got around to it. So old Sam. Um, old Sam. Yeah. Uh, I wrote us into a corner that we couldn't get out of because of who Jack was, which I wanted to do the uh, the Fafner myth, where someone's greed and 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 uh, uh, just terrible, terrible ways caused him to turn into a dragon. This is. <coughs> the Ring of the Nibelung stuff. Uh, so we had Jack do that. But then the only way to get out of it, to, to reverse it, is for him to become a good person. And poor, poor Matt and I was like, well, that wasn't gonna happen. <laughs> There's just no way. Because one of our rules was no, uh, it was the Seinfeld rule, no hugging and no learning. Jack could <laughs> never learn from his mistakes. Therefore, we were stuck until, and the only way to get out of you know, the ghost jack came back as a person after the dragon died, but uh, um, yeah, we uh, we 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 wrote ourselves into a corner so many times. But usually, we can write ourselves into a corner and get out of it. Except for that was one of the sacrosanct rules that we could never break. Is he was and he didn't even write that as a line. Well, then I'm stuck in the dragon forever. So I've got to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he knew it himself. He, yeah. <laughs> And I want, I'm glad we got into Jack George territory because, as you just said, I appreciated those kind of non-expected fable stories coming from Jack, and the same goes with Cinderella too. I mean, you know, you know, just the, the the path of Cinderella as this spy was just a blast. By the way, there, there's some generosity that's coming over here. The reason Chris started doing the Cinderella things is he came up to me. In was it one of those San Diego after party things with the idea for Cinderella? What did you? No, that's no. not what happened. Oh, that was uh, Mark. Uh, uh, Mark and Draco became up in the. Well, so uh, it was right after the first time we saw Cinderella as a super spy. Um, and right, we issued that what eighteen or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. early on. Yeah. And uh, Serge and I were having lunch. Uh, Chipotle and I was like, man, that that's such a great idea. Like they should, he should do like miniseries, and, and they should let me write. But I wasn't doing comics at the time at all. Uh, I was writing novels, and it was like I think like a year and a half later or something. He just called me up and said that I want to do it. So I don't think really. And somehow you told me this the idea though. Well, you called me up and asked me if I want to do it, and I, I spun the idea on the phone. No, because I, I think you're, you at some point came up to me and said, "This is a great idea. This is what you should do." This, this, and this. Oh no! The, it, so you may be thinking of the se- so the second mini. Oh, okay. So the second mini series. Um, I'll spoil it. Okay. This is um, like a, a much more boring sequel to Rashomon. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, my, so my wife and I are watching The Wiz, right? Because it's awesome. And um, Man, as I'm watching it, I'm like, uh, in both this version of the story and in the original and in the novel. Uh, Dorothy gets transported to this magical world and then just goes around killing people uh, for gain. Like she yes. kills, she kills one witch by accident, gets some good stuff out of it, 
and this seems like a pretty good gig. And so it, it's hired to kill another one. It's really weird in the movie too, because the mother's like, you're gonna have to come kill the Wicked Witch of the West. She's like, okay. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's never any moral qualms. No, I, She's like, all right. I love that description of the Wizard of Oz, uh, the TV Guide description, which is, a uh, young girl kills the line, kills the first person she meets, and teams up with three others to kill again. Yeah, and, that's, that's the and it is. So hack down her, her sister and kill her. You're right. You're her right. aggrieved sister. Yes. Who only wants her dead sister shooting. Yes. So I, I, I emailed Bill. And I was like, we needed a whole new one. Right. I was like, dude, like, if you ever, like, uh, need an antagonist, because I'd already done the Once in a Row series, and I just assumed that they were doing more. Because um, I've read bridges and stuff. Um, and then I was like, if you ever do any more Cindy stuff, like, you should bring Dorothy on as, like, her, her nemesis, because she's, she's an assassin. <laughs> she, she She's a witch killer for a hire. Yes. She's she read Granger. She would have read uh, Robert uh, Shaw's uh, character in Russia with Love, Red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Like, I think I thought like she would have gotten a taste for it. You know, like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty good at this, you know, and uh, we just go around killing people for magical stuff. And, uh, oh, that's awesome. the, and that's when you were like, well, you should do that. Okay, yeah. I'll, all right, I'll do that. Well, I guess, like, what I meant by the generosity is that, that you called up and, and just threw this like, wonderful idea to me, like, it's, you know, expecting nothing in return. Right. Yeah, but. But yeah, but, but the should, thing is, right. I, I'd forgotten at that point uh, the bit of business uh, where she was in Jack Fables. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it just been a while since I read those. And I was like, oh, crap. Like she was, but that, that gave a great story possibility for like, well, why has she been off the board for this? Right. Because um, she's been off in this other book. And, and the memory hole was a wonderful device for keeping people off the stage until we need them to... Yeah. 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 It was fun. <laughs> All right. Yeah, sir. So, anyway. I'm back. Last question. Uh, reading, and this is again for all the gentlemen, reading the stories, I know there's collaboration, I get it, I understand, but reading the book, reading the stories, exactly did they jump off at you to, as you were saying with Cindy, Dorothy, Wizard of Oz. Wow, did that just you watch the movie? How there are some of the tales. I forget the, the Chicken Hut. Uh, it's a Russian folklore. I had never heard it. I'm pretty literate, and it, wow, wait a second. I gotta go check this out. Whether it be library, internet, whatever. Was it hard? You know, again, going back to the writing. Were they extremely easy? Were they really easy ones? So, oh, A, B, the C, the D, and then wait to get from N to X. You know what? What particular storylines? Well, in this case, like the cart came before the horse. I was reading fairy tales um, my entire life, and uh, uh, so I was kind of steeped in it. Um, I was by no means an expert, although I've been accused of being one uh, since fables started, which is kind of cool. I mean, scholars saying, oh, this guy is a, is a scholar of fairy tales. I'm like, no, I'm a guy, I, I read uh, for pleasure. Uh, the nice thing that happened with fables is then I had a justification. I could, I could uh, uh, quite often I would read when I should have been getting work done. And, and at least with fables, doing fairy tale reading, uh, I could, it, with justification, say, no, I'm, this is part of the work. This is, uh, and but, like the Jack, uh, Jack of Tales, where he went to the Americana, it's like, yeah. oh, I remember. 
grew up in Disney, wonderful world, and so forth. And then, oh wait, I didn't get that. Was yeah, but I never did research. Okay. What I did was, you read the stories, during fables I'm making mental notes that, yeah, this might be something I could use someday. Sometimes I would make physical notes, but that's... And a lot of it is just recontextualizing too, because yeah. like, just talking about the, the Dorothy stuff, like I went back, and so I had the original idea, and then I went back and read Wizard of Oz, and like the stuff that those shoes, the silver slippers are designed, des described as being able to do, I was like, she never does anything cool with those shoes in the books. No, she's not a, she loses them right away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe she remembered where she dropped them, she could be cooler. <laughs> but asking the question constantly, what could you do with this? Uh, or what could you do to subvert it? Helps. Part of it is a, it's a sickness. Like, so I can't encounter anything without thinking, like, how am I going to use this in a story? Sure. Right. Even if it's something horrible. Like some horrible thing that's happened in the world. Okay? And then you also play the game too, especially I, I, I do a lot of older things. And, and for instance, Dave and I did this with uh, the Beowulf story, because there are some things, thing, and uh, there's something that didn't add up. I don't even know if we ever actually used this. Yeah, no, we did. It was, it was told in the backstory that, um, that uh, Grendel is, you know, killed in the original story. And so we needed to have some, you know, we wanted to put in some hand wave as to why he was still alive. And so uh, what we decided was that he was uh, ultimately just a, a coward um, who couldn't face his rival face to face. So what he did was he just sort of uh, went off stage and hid for a long time, let his mom try to do his dirty work for him, um, and then paid to have Beowulf assassinated later. Because it's a really weird ending to the Beowulf story. Yes. That, uh, and that Beowulf is successful and he and the Geats hang out and do great stuff, and then he's just killed. Just, he's just murdered. Well, sort of. I mean, it implies that after the Grendel thing, he had many, many, many adventures until he's an old king. Right. And the dragon comes and kills him. That uh, there was lots of stuff. And before Grendel, uh, there was lots of stuff. I mean, he, he swam for. Uh, seven days and seven nights in full armor, killing many, many sea monsters uh, on the way to win a contest with with another geat that was pretty good at that too. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. but you know, his thing was his kung fu grip. Did you notice that? <laughs> that's right. you really, that's his big thing. He would like grab you with his really strong grip. Um, but the, I, the point is to, to answer the question that um, I think that, that we have a tendency to kind of look at these stories and say, what else is in this story? You know, what else, What's what can we pull from this? And to or, make our own? why is this in this story? And you have to answer that question. Like, why can the wolf huff and puff? Why can Right, why is yeah. it like this? And what? And then it just seems yeah. to start making up the stories in your head from there. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you, John. Last question. Is it? Well, well they, the, the thing's coming up in about 20 minutes. We're, we're technically over time now, but, but we still got, we have like actually about 25 minutes. So if someone else does have a question, get up now, otherwise this will be the final question. Ah, uh, there he goes. Can, yeah, can you talk about uh, how the crossover with Unwritten came about? Because um, it sort of happens like right at the end of the second act of Unwritten, and it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, um, Peter Gross uh, is a uh, Minneapolis native. Uh, well, not, I don't know if he was born there, but he was living there. And I'm in that area now, and so we ended up seeing each other a lot. I've known Peter forever, um, uh, and I've always 
like this stuff, and, and I congratulated them on the unwritten. Uh, before Fables, I uh, I proposed two different series to Vertigo that was very much uh, like the unwritten. It was the premises. Uh, you can you have characters that can travel inside the books and have adventures there and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, Vertigo turned both of them down, uh, wisely so, because, uh, and even though I was a little peaked when The Unwritten was announced, and I was like, oh, well, that was very much my idea, but they found the right avenue into that idea. Um, so we're talking about that, and at a convention, uh, we're sitting side by side, and, and one or the other was speculated, you know, Fables of the Unwritten could almost coexist in the same extended fictional universe. And I'm like, well, not just almost. I mean, it could. I mean, when there's many, many lands that you can go to. Uh, and it started like that. The weird thing is, is, um, uh, so Peter and I had the idea and, and bounced it off of uh, our writer and artist, respectively. And those two Brits got together and really worked out the meat of the story. Um, so, yeah, it, it happened in two different stages, but it, it just seemed inevitable to happen. And we got to have our cake and eat it too, because we got to show if we if we went left rather than right at a certain key point, uh, what would have happened, and we got to explore that. And that was kind of neat. It's interesting because it's almost at that point they become, they go into their own, into Virgo, right? Into, like, to, the unwritten characters are inside the fables book. Yeah. Rep chips are. Oh, or yeah. absolutely. If you're not required. Get that rabbit. Hey, you're not required, but you're going to get You might get some fun stuff. Uh, is there a character or story that you wish you could have another crack at, like, that you feel like you didn't? Quite nail and you would, you know, and if so, what would you want to redo with them? Almost. Uh, Peter Pan was originally going to be the adversary. Uh, I'm glad it worked out that we couldn't use him uh, because I think Geppetto and spoiling thing became a much better, I mean, secret cover master behind the scenes. You couldn't do better than Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, when Peter Pan finally did become available, uh, the bloom was kind of off that rose. Uh, you understand, I, I always knew Peter Pan was a villain from childhood because the whole movie, I, I, like many, first encountered him in the uh, Disney movie. The very first scene, he shows up and steals kids away from a family that loves them. I mean, he was clearly the villain of the piece. Um, that's why Doc, uh, Dr. Hook. Captain Hook, which may be Dr. Hook. Now, there's a crossover. Um, <laughs> I forgot. Better look next time. Uh, he was clearly maligned as the bad guy when he was clearly the good guy. And so in the original fables, Peter Pan was going to be the adversary, and Captain Hook, who ended up being Bluebeard, uh, the, visual the visual design for Captain Hook was going to be uh, the Bluebeard character. Um, which is why in the opening scene, Lam Medina puts... Uh, a hook under glass with just a little, a little weight to where this is the character he should have been. Anyway, he was going to be the good guy. That he and his his crew are going to Neverland from time to time to rescue these kids and bring them back to to whatever. But uh, 
that would have been nice to use. Uh, I wanted to use some of the Icarus Burroughs characters, which were becoming public domain. The problem is, is Burroughs was prolific over too long a time. So not all, like all of the Tarzan books, for example, are yet in the public domain. Some are, some aren't, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think they would have been appropriate. That's why Mobley was going to be my Tarzan character, yeah. you know, Tarzan light, uh, even though he was first. But anyway, uh, but then I get to scratch that itch because now Dynamite has the Burroughs stuff and I get to include them in the legendary thing coming up. Uh, so I get, yeah, so the, the stuff I really want to use has come around, I think. I was going to do a thing because I can't seem to avoid uh, weird interspecies bestiality things in your stories. Um, I was going to do um, uh, a, a spy adventure story in Asia with the Asian fables who we hadn't seen a lot of, uh, and review the, the their kind of field agent spy dude is Monkey from Journey to the West, um, and uh, he can do all kinds of cool shape changing stuff and whatnot. But he's a monkey, uh, and reveal that that he and Cinderella had like a torrid look there in the last couple <laughs> years. Because they were like on opposite side, they weren't really enemies, and they'd kind of meet in like clandestine related places. So I think there's a gag. I set it up um, in the second Cinderella thing where she says, maybe I just have a thing for guys with big ears and make me laugh or something, I think maybe. Yeah. And that's a reference to Monkey. Um, so yeah, I wasn't going to actually have on panel her having sex with but like, it would be clear that that's better. I always felt that Finn would be disappointed if like, you Maybe so hurt. Yeah, yeah. There's some I say, I spoke about Linda Medley at the Castle Waiting, which you should, you should get. Uh, she is one of my favorite obscure fable characters. Uh, Iron John or Iron Heinrich or various versions. Uh, the guy that uh, his in various versions, his kids die in a horrible way. And in order to stave off his grief, he he's an ironsmith, so he, he forms three, he puts three bands of iron around his heart so that he can never feel anything again. And he feels no grief. Um, but she, he was part of the cast of uh, Castle Waiting, one of the central cast, the core cast. Uh, so I stayed away from it because it's sort of like, yes, he's public domain and I could have used him, but she kind of laid claim to him. Uh, fair and square before I got there. Uh, I would love that. I mean, the, the tragedy of that character just writes itself. It could have been been great. The the perfect unfeeling person and what happens when those bands you know, come off. So. Very cool. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I said keep going. I, I've never wanted to, to uh, yeah, take your this, I think we keep going until the coin back. Uh, oh, that's hilarious. No, 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 no but no, I, if you, all right, real fast, sir. Because I was going to say, because I was going to let that table final thought. And, I got to pee really bad. Yeah, I was going to say, truly. So we all okay. rolled that up. I'm trying to make it like that. I like asking creative people uh, kind of what makes them tick. So outside of your own books or even fables, what? Amphetamines. Nothing but amphetamines. It's like when you eat or watch or. I guess we're in comic book environment. You read comics, and not necessarily it's a way. Uh, Astro Boy, uh, Astro Boy, Astro City, Hellboy. Um, oh, I like Astro Boy. Astro Boy. I get, come on. I get bored. Have you read Pluto though? No. Oh, dude, we get bored with Pluto. Oh, that's the the, the, the thing. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, okay. All right. Uh, Is Pluto Boy the Pluto very Astro Boy like? 
That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. Pluto is, it's an homage yeah. to that's right. I have no idea. No, I do have to read Pluto. All right, that's good to know. Thank you. All right. Also, Gravity Falls and Steven Universe. Um, I, I am a very voracious, very uh, eclectic reader. Um, and I, I, it's kind of a purpose, but also just I have, I get all kinds of interests. And when I get an interest, I'll follow that interest down a rabbit hole. And I'll read and learn everything I can about that thing. And then my, you know, until my fiance says, can we stop hearing about the Sumerians for a while? And then I know that it's like, it kind of run its course, and then I will go and do another. You're like shaking your head and laughing, like, is this you or is this him? It's you. You're that guy. Okay. I'm sorry, that's just how he is. It's not, it's not going to change. Yeah, following things down the rabbit hole methodology is, is pretty much what works. I went down a really deep Sumerian hole a couple weeks ago. No, really? Yeah, they're fascinating. Yeah, it's very helpful. And sometimes it leads to wonderful places. I mean, I followed one thing after another after another. I cannot even remember what I was initially interested in. But it led to the fact that, you know, during the, the Second World War, uh, the Allies built a ship out of ice and uh, a battleship. I did with some sawdust in there, too. Well, the, the, yeah, they put stuff on top of it as insulation, but, uh, and it took a one horsepower motor to keep the ice. You know, I just found out, I'm, I'm running stories out of this, um, that uh, in the 1940s, they identified three different giant icebergs floating around the Arctic, okay? And then, so starting in 1948, they started putting stations on them. Yeah. And they were, they were, they were manned up until the 70s, um, just floating on these icebergs. That's pretty cool. Because I was like, I'm doing a thing. And I need to have like some sort of like Arctic location. I'm putting the ship in uh, one of the new novels. It's a sequel to uh, another novel I haven't seen yet. Uh, but uh, just like I wrote, where Bigby served in the Second World War, there's this immortal character that one of his flashbacks is he served aboard the ship of ice because, of course, the folk from Ferry don't do well with a lot of iron mm -hmm. around, but they wanted to serve. So they built the ship of ice for all of the fairy fairy people living in, in the uh, living in our world, the bright world, um, to to do their part. And then they get clobbered because uh, it was a great idea, but it was also a, so slow that it was a magnet for every ship. But you know that so putting a magnet for every bad guy out there is technically kind of an interesting thing to play with. Anyway, so yes, you follow things down rabbit World War II was also the source of uh, Nutella. That in Italy, uh, yeah, in Italy there was a scarcity of chocolate. It's true. There was a scarcity of chocolate in Italy, like there was in a lot of places, because all the chocolate went to the soldiers. Uh, there was a glut of hazelnuts, and so this uh, chocolatier started grinding up hazelnuts and mixed. And it, because Nutella is delicious, Chris. All right. All right. The bad moms. Why do you hate Nutella? Yeah, I don't like it actually. <laughs> The bat bomb was going to be used. I think we have to wrap it. And it only got canceled because the, the nuke kind of overshadowed. It's like, well, it isn't even better. Anyway, all this stuff, all of that kind of stuff is going to be used. Comics you should be reading. Anything by Mike Mignola. You're I once made a mistake in a comic shop of saying I would read Mike Mignola if he did a, did a history of foot fungus. And 
Uh, like when I, you know, I could make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, he said, I would not like to see a thing of football. Like, oh, that's not the point. It's like anything, <laughs> anything he touches is going to be great, even if he were to write a history of football. Goes, oh, I don't want to see that book. Isn't that so? He's not going to write a thing of football. I'm just saying, if he did, I would. Anyway, we all know that guy at our local comic shop. Yeah, uh, we gotta stop. Yeah. We have to stop. No, I was gonna say, but there's there is stuff for there is stuff for final thoughts. All right, all right, final thoughts. Yeah, let's no, you know. Uh, plus, Matt's gonna go to the bathroom. I really, really bad. My final thought is gonna be quick. Um, uh, I've really enjoyed working with Bill on Fables, and I'm kind of sad because I feel like it's probably the last Fables-related thing that we're gonna do. Uh -huh. um, but it's been really great. Being involved in it, and that's a real. And one thing, one thing that we have not mentioned is that Matt and I both have careers in comics because because of Bill. Oh, Bill. That very nice. Yeah. Very nice. We do. That's okay. I can prove with Matt that's not true. Uh, it, it's going to take a while. Um, yeah, all right. No, we got to show you work. Listen, listen. listen. <laughs> the talent is going to to play out. I got a lot of my first chances by people who just said like this guy can can do it, and and there was no reason those people needed to do that. I mean, part of of being in this business and and all that, and it's not altruistic at all. It's it's what other guys can do stuff. Um, you know, you guys had to get work because because Shelley was going to go elsewhere. Uh, if I couldn't, you know, pull out people that could do this that, that I wanted to. Sure. So yeah, it's, it's it's it's. I owe my career to whatever is is always. It's very complimentary, thank you. But it's always wrong in the particulars uh, or in the in the macro sense. So and well, I I say obviously based on these thirteen years continue to follow these uh, gentlemen in, in, in their new projects. And oh, speaking of which, yeah, uh, I, have yeah, a, I have a new project called Public Relations. It's coming out on the 23rd, uh, which is not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after next. I would love it if you guys would ask your local comic shop to order it and pick it up if it's there. Um, Who's through? This is from Devil's Do, first comment. Devil's this is co-written by me and Dave Justice. It's a, it's a book we've literally been working on for the past seven years. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a funny, funny book. Um, it has great art by David Hahn, uh, beautiful covers by Annie Wu. Um, and I think if you enjoyed uh, Jack of Fables at all, this is a book you should really consider getting. Excellent. I read the first five and perhaps more. How many exist now? There, there are 13. 13. So read the first five. Yeah. And it is, it is hilariously funny. Um, there's at least one joke in one of those issues, I think five, that's gonna throw both Matt and Dave in jail. So get this, it's gonna be a collector's item uh, once they're doing time for for bad thought. Yeah, it's, not, it's not technically illegal, we'll get yelled at. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> it, is, it is a wonderful book. Um, I've got three new very small comic projects, meaning they're not gonna be 150 issues coming out, I'm not gonna mention the name of either, because I'm having really bad luck keeping an artist going on this, uh, um, apparently I got spoiled. Uh, Bucky stayed for 13 years, and I forgot that others don't do that. Uh, but when the time comes, you should read them. And Chris is writing uh, everything in Hellboy. I'm technically co-writing, um, but uh, yeah, I'm writing. Um, Hellboy, the VPRD, 
Um, Mike, it's not been officially announced, but Mike has talked in interviews about the fact that I'm doing Wishfinder too. And uh, there's a bunch of other stuff uh, that hasn't been announced. And we're going to talk more about uh, Chris's work tomorrow in a solo panel. It's out there as a Cullen Bunn panel, but Cullen couldn't be there. And as I said earlier, oh, so uh, I'm like, hey, let's do, a, let's do a Chris panel because of everything that's going on, not just iZombie and BPRD, but a lot of other things as well. So you can learn more tomorrow with us. But uh, no, seriously, great time. Thank you for your patience and your attention. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your fine work. And there you go. That uh, wraps up my uh, coverage of Cincy Comic Con from last month. I hope uh, everyone enjoyed uh, the programming. And I hope next year, if uh, your schedule allows and you're in that tri-state area, it's worth the trip. Cincy Comic Con, uh, it will happen again next September. And odds are, Word Balloon will be a part of it, uh, helping out uh, figure out the panels and uh, bring you the panels, both live at the event and then later on right here on the Word Balloon podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. Tell a friend if you did. Uh, today's episode was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Uh, select Marvel, Soleil, and famous author titles are up to 70% off at InStock Trades. Same goes with select Boom Studio titles, up to 70% off the standard retail price. That, in addition to other great deals that you will find at the pages of InStockTrades.com. Just look up your favorite uh, writer or your favorite artist, and you will likely find great books at prices you won't believe. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping. They make it easy on books like The Hawkeye Omnibus from Matt Fraction and David Aja is 50% off, $49.99. You can get the uh, Jessica Jones trade paperback, alias Volume 2, uh, 42% off from uh, Brian Bendis and Mike Gatos. It's just $11.59. You can get Wolf Moon, the Vertigo miniseries from Jeremy Hahn and Cullen Bunn. 45% off, $8.94. You can get the Star Wars Legends Epic Collection. 42% off, $20.19. From Dark Horse, Prometheus, the hardcover, complete Fire and Stone. 42% off, $25.99. Just the tip of the iceberg of great deals happening, happening at InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself. More great savings are waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. John Suntra saying thanks as always for listening to Word Balloon. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your continued support. Again, if you'd like to subscribe to the show, go to WordBalloon.com, and uh, you can click on the uh, Patreon ad right there on the front page, or click on the tab, and it will take you to videos and explain uh, why I think, uh, you know, if you can help me out with some subscription money, that's terrific. Help the cause. Uh, I, I really do appreciate it, and uh, thank you for your support in listening and contributing to Word Balloon. Questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Uh, like me, if you would, please, on uh, our uh, Facebook page for the Word Balloon Network. You can follow me at Facebook under my name, John Suntress. Uh, you can follow me at Twitter at, at John Word Balloon. If you listen via iTunes, uh, do me a favor. If you could write a review and uh, rate the show, good or bad, it doesn't matter. I certainly would appreciate it. And uh, like I say, tell a friend if you enjoy the program and uh, think uh, what I'm doing here is worth your time. Maybe it's worth another friend's time that uh, enjoys geek culture the way that you do. So uh, spread the word and uh, let people know about Word Balloon. Until next time, thanks for listening. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2015. Love. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.